Do you have a question, comment, or concern? 872-242-8311. Or maybe you'd just like to hear your voice instead of ours. 872-242-8311. Then call the D2R Podcast Network hotline at USA Chat 311. That's 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. No matter the time or day, you can call 24-7 and operators will be standing by. 872-242-8311. Your call is important to us. 872-242-8311. So once again, USA Chat 311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. 872-242-8311. Check out all the great deals on Amazon by first going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend, and thanks for listening. Why are you so excited? Because Santa's coming! Yeah, but Twisted Crib. I know, it's over. But Santa's coming! You're right. Santa is coming. The Think Tank Podcast. And now, coming to you pre-recorded, deep undercover, in the world's deepest, darkest, most secure, Hadron Collider and Nuclear Bomb Tested and Approved Doomsday Bunker, here is Ryan the Area Man. It appears as though something has happened in the motorcade route. Something, I repeat, has happened in the motorcade route. It was over half a century ago, but for so many, it seems like only yesterday. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. And for 54 years, there have been questions about the official story. Was Lee Harvey Oswald really the killer? Did he act alone? Was it a conspiracy? I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. The official story just doesn't hang together. And so people are still hungry for information about this shocking event. And they, and they realize that the story they've been given is false. But now thousands of secret files have finally been made public. Classified documents about the Kennedy assassination. 
hidden away for decades at the National Archives in Washington, triggering a kind of historical feeding frenzy online and on air. Today's much-anticipated release of highly anticipated documents. The release of previously classified documents. Thousands of never-before-seen classified documents. Documents like this one from the FBI director, two days after the assassination. We need to convince the public Oswald is the real assassin. So can those recently released records explain the inexplicable? Actually, the president's death was preventable and may have been easily prevented if somebody had just read through the files at the FBI and the CIA. Ahead, the fight over the documents that may disprove the official story of what happened on November 22, 1963, and why. There was this fellow Oswald, and we didn't really know much about him, and he came out of nowhere and shot the president. And what these files show is that's a cover story. That was not true. Friday morning, 11.37. The president's jet lands at the Dallas airport, Love Field. It all began on the morning of November 22nd, a Friday. But the outwardly warm reception in Dallas masked the outright hatred many in Texas felt for the president. 1963 was the height of the Cold War, and that morning, full-page right-wing newspaper ads called him a traitor, with accusations of being soft on communism. Anti-Castro Cubans seethed at his reluctance to invade and liberate their homeland. But as the presidential limousine carrying the Kennedys and Texas Governor John Connolly and his wife wended its way through downtown Dallas just before 12.30 p.m., the route was lined by a crowd many deep. Suddenly, there were gunshots. The president's head jerked back and to the left. Then the motorcade sped away. It's official now. The president has been assassinated. But consider this. In the months before that killing, a most unusual movie was shot in and around Washington, D.C. And I will not resign voluntarily. I'm going to fight you. And then we'll see which one of us the United States is willing to follow. Seven days in May was the story of a military coup against the American president. I'm suggesting, Mr. President, there's a military plot to take over the government. There are some who will say, it can never happen here. Incredibly, at the same time, it seems President Kennedy was openly worried about the possibility of a coup. The story made its way to Brian McKenna, then a young Montreal Star reporter, from a Canadian admiral assigned to the Pentagon. And he told me he couldn't understand how openly they talked about uh, a coup. How openly they talked about uh, Seven Days in May, which was a novel that was being turned into a movie. That brought a secret presidential messenger to death in a plane crash in Spain. The day a senator of the United States was held against his will. He found it shocking, actually. He found it he said it was basically sedition they were speaking but they were they were planning something he, he had this sense they, they were planning something definitely what's more when McKenna contacted the movie's director he learned the film had been encouraged by none other than President Kennedy and he said Pierce Ellinger the press secretary to John Kennedy called me one day and said the president will give you the White House for a weekend to shoot but he wants you to make that that story that book into a movie 
uh, as a warning to, to Americans of, of what is possible out there. It was a shocking scenario, a government takeover, the killing of a president. But in just a few weeks, John Kennedy himself would be dead. The tragic events have been a journalistic touchstone for Brian McKenna ever since. Oh, nothing comes close. Nothing comes close to the Kennedy assassination and, uh, and the, the greatest murder mystery of the 20th century, clearly. And before long, McKenna joined the CBC, where he produced this, the fifth estate investigation of the Kennedy killing on its 20th anniversary, drew almost three million viewers, the show's biggest audience ever. 20 years ago today, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. The president's brother, Robert Kennedy, then attorney general, was haunted by the possibility of a conspiracy. And it started with this man. In the fall of 1963, Lee Harvey Oswald was on the move, based in Dallas, but seen distributing pro-communist pamphlets in New Orleans and traveling to Mexico City, where he sought visas from the Soviet embassy and Cuban consulate. However, the new documents reveal that if Oswald thought he was under the radar, he certainly was not. Oswald kind of came to the attention of the CIA in 1963 in two places, in New Orleans in August 1963, and in Mexico City about six weeks later in October of 1963. Investigative journalist Jeff Morley says the newly released files detail the extent of American surveillance of Lee Harvey Oswald, especially in Mexico, by the CIA. Mind you, everywhere Oswald goes on this, this, this little venture, he's tripping off CIA surveillance activities. When he walks into the Cuban consulate, they have an impulse camera on that door. So when he penetrates the plane of the door, that camera goes off. When he goes in, when he comes out. Same thing down the street at the, at the Soviet embassy, impulse camera. When he gets into the Soviet embassy, he talks, his voice is picked up on a, a CIA wiretap. What's more, Jeff Morley says, the files also show that back in 1963, in Dallas, the FBI had its eyes on Oswald, too. They knew where he was, and they were, um, they were visiting him and his wife on a regular basis just to kind of check in with them. Incredibly, given all that, somehow Lee Harvey Oswald found himself in Dallas at the very same time as the president, armed with a rifle and apparently away from the prying eyes of the CIA and FBI. How could that be? Author Jeff Morley. And so the question is, were they incompetent? Nobody in the CIA or FBI does anything and they're just asleep at the wheel. That's one theory. That's the official theory. Everybody was just asleep at the wheel, and he just slipped past us. The other theory, which I lean more towards, is somebody was watching Oswald the whole time, and that's proven by these documents. After the break, what role do those new documents show the CIA played in the assassination of JFK? There's two crimes here. One is the murder itself, and the second is the cover-up of the murder. And what we were witnessing with all of these things happening was the cover-up of the murder. The story doesn't end here. Like the Fifth Estate's Facebook page so you can follow our investigations. We will post updates on stories and special video features that take you deep inside. It is known as the JFK Records Act. 
And back in 1992, the U.S. Congress made it American law, ordering the government to make public all records about the Kennedy assassination within 25 years by 2017, releasing tens of thousands of documents kept secret for over half a century. Well, I think that the, 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 the intense media coverage shows that people are looking for an answer. They're looking for a better explanation than the one that they've been given for 50 years. Over the years, Jeff Morley has had many unanswered questions. The former Washington Post reporter now writes a JFK website and has authored several books about the assassination and the CIA. Morley says those declassified documents have focused attention on the connection with JFK's accused killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, that the Central Intelligence Agency has tried so long to hide. You've got to wonder, why go through all that effort if it's so obvious that this one guy killed the president for no reason? So to me, it's almost self-evident that the government is hiding something that's highly embarrassing to them about all of this. Which takes us to Dallas on November 22, 1963, and the facts uncovered by the Fifth Estate broadcast on the assassination's 20th anniversary. Along with the material recently released, it is more troubling than ever. The president's car is now turning onto Elm Street, and it will be only a matter of minutes before he arrives at the trademark. It was almost 12.30 p.m. as the Kennedy motorcade passed the Texas School Book Depository, and gunshots rang out. From the beginning, there were questions about the fatal shots. After the first bullet struck, just 5.6 seconds elapsed until the final shot. This FBI simulation concluded Lee Harvey Oswald, said to be a poor marksman as a Marine, had somehow fired three bullets in those few seconds, hitting the president, wounding Texas Governor John Connolly, then the lethal shot that killed Kennedy. Ever since, it's been the official U.S. government story. There was only one shooter, the lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald. Another question was about Oswald's weapon, supposedly this $21 bolt-action rifle. But even an expert marksman couldn't fire three shots in 5.6 seconds with it. That's when the official story changed, deciding the president's and governor's wounds were caused not by three bullets, but just two. The first shot, they now argued, hit both men. This bullet, same ammunition, it looks like a... In our original report, forensic pathologist Cyril Wecht explained what was called the single bullet theory. Single bullet theory says that one bullet struck the president in the back, coursed through his upper chest, exited from the front of his neck, re-entered John Conley's back, pierced the right lung, collapsing it, severed a vein, artery, and nerve, broke the right fifth rib, destroying five inches of that bone, exited from the front of the governor's right chest, re-entered the back of the governor's right forearm, caused a comminuted fracture of the distal end of the radius, a very thick bone, partially severed a vein, artery, and nerve, exited from the front of the governor's right wrist, re-entered the governor's left thigh, went all the way down to the femur, the big bone in the thigh, bounced back, came out through the same small hole in the skin, fell into the governor's clothing, from his clothing onto the stretcher, 
and was fortuitously found a few hours later in the afternoon on Friday, November 22, 1963, at Parkland Memorial Hospital by a maintenance employee who was trying to get to the men's room and found a corridor blocked by stretchers. My take on the magic bullet theory is, is nobody in the car believed that that's what happened. According to author and journalist Jeff Morley, the four other occupants of the presidential limousine rejected the magic bullet theory. Jackie didn't think that's what happened. She said, I don't remember it that way. Governor Connolly said it did not happen, flatly, uh, that the first bullet hit President Kennedy and the second bullet hit him. Governor Connolly's wife, who was sitting in the jump seat with Governor Connolly, N Nellie Connolly, said the same thing. The Connollys were both hunters, experienced with guns. And Roy Kellerman, the Secret Serviceman sitting in the front seat, said we were hit with a flurry of shots, including one from the front. Then came this, the 8mm film of the fatal shot taken by Abraham Zapruder and kept secret by the CIA since 1963, was finally released 12 years after the assassination. For the first time, the world could see John Kennedy put hands to throat as the first bullet rips through him from back to front. But watch as another bullet strikes. The president's head snaps backwards, convincing many of a second gunman in front of the car. In other words, a conspiracy. In just over an hour, the Dallas police allegedly found that gunman in a nearby movie theater, then whisked him to headquarters. He was former Marine and known communist sympathizer, Lee Harvey Oswald. The only record of what he said was as police escorted him through the throngs of reporters and cameras. Against the wall. All right, these, these people have given me a hearing without legal representation or anything. I didn't shoot anybody, no, sir. And another question. On his arrest in Dallas, what did the U.S. government know about Lee Harvey Oswald? Now, recall, the story was there was this fellow Oswald, and we didn't really know much about him, and he came out of nowhere and shot the president. And what these files show is that's a cover story. That was not true. High-level CIA officials were paying attention to Oswald from November 1959 to November 1963. And the newly released records support that. Files that fly in the face of the official story. What this release tells me more is CIA's capabilities to monitor and manipulate Oswald. And the documents show what he did and with whom. For example, this CIA cable dated October 8, 1963, about Oswald's visit to Mexico City and his meeting at the Soviet Embassy with Valery Kostikov, head of the KGB's Department 13, its assassinations branch. That cable went all the way to the top of the CIA. The head of U.S. counterintelligence, legendary American spy, James Angleton. The CIA cover story is... Our interest in Oswald was merely routine. Well, it, it wasn't routine. It was intensive, and it was at a very high level. And there is another recently declassified document that raises questions. Two days after Oswald was arrested, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover sent a memo marked secret, 
in which he reveals the FBI had got a warning that Oswald would be killed, which he says was passed on to the Dallas police. To ask that Oswald be given sufficient protection, he wrote. If so, it didn't work. A few hours later, Lee Harvey Oswald was brought down by elevator to the basement of police headquarters. For Jeff Morley, Hoover's memo begs the question, was it incompetence or willful ignorance? No, and, and that portion of the memo compounds the travesty of the chief assassination suspect being killed in police custody because the Dallas police had been warned and they ignored the warning and took the prisoner into an unsecured area. This is the man who shot Oswald, Jack Ruby, a local nightclub owner and small-time mobster. Authorities described him as insane with grief over President Kennedy's death. They concluded that after Oswald killed Kennedy, Ruby killed him and they both acted alone. But what about Jack Ruby's ties to the mob? What might they indicate? In our original show, Eric Malling spoke to Richard Billings, a congressional staff member who investigated the Kennedy assassination in the late 1970s. The main piece of evidence of, of organized crime complicity in the conspiracy is Jack Ruby. According to Billings, Ruby was a bona fide mafia member. He was working for mobsters. He was a runner for Al Capone, messenger boy when he, when he was a kid. He, he worked for the mob in Chicago. Ruby was nothing else but mob. And insiders said Ruby's killing of Oswald had the hallmarks of a gangland hit, quickly approaching the victim, jamming the gun in his stomach, pulling the trigger. So why would the American Mafia want to be complicit in the assassination of the president? This CIA document, also recently released, refers to the strong drive to get after the Mafia by the Kennedys, both JFK and Attorney General Robert. By 1963, it was no secret the mob was fighting back. Before he died, Jack Ruby told friends and family his role in Dallas had been part of a much larger plot. And consider this, the memo written by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover after Kennedy was killed, also recently released. It's seen by many as proof that Lee Harvey Oswald was the U.S. government's patsy in JFK's death. Hoover wrote, I am concerned about having something issued so we can convince the public Oswald is the real assassin. And so in that moment, the president's been dead for less than 48 hours, and Hoover has already dictated the result that the official investigation, which has not begun, will reach. So th the conclusion of the assassination was dictated before the, the investigation began. That's what that J. Edgar Hoover memo tells us. There's two crimes here. One is the murder itself, and the second is the cover-up of the murder. Mm -hmm. and For former CBC producer Brian McKenna, the more he dug into the JFK story, the more he was convinced a conspiracy killed Kennedy. He says the most telling clue was the dramatic change in the condition of the president's body from the emergency room in Dallas to the autopsy outside Washington. When we come back... I mean, you don't alter a body. You don't mess with dead people. It's certainly not a president's body. 
How then? To explain this. We got the last part of the sheet off. There was a, just a gasp in the room. And I looked down and I said to myself, my God, there's no brain. It's all gone. There's always more to our stories. You can keep up with The Fifth Estate by subscribing to our weekly newsletter. We'll tell you what we're working on and share updates on past stories. Sign up on our website at cbc.ca slash fifth. Now we've received reports here at Parkland. The first unconfirmed reports say the president was hit in the head. That's an unconfirmed report. To this day, the official story is that the shot that killed John Kennedy hit him in the head from behind. But is that what the autopsy showed? It's an important question because doubts about the integrity of JFK's medical records are among the most contentious issues surrounding the assassination. When Kennedy was declared dead, the doctors who had tried to save him at Parkland Hospital in Dallas gave a briefing. Little attention has been paid to it, but incredibly, what they said was the opposite of the official story. The doctors described the fatal shot, small entry wound in front, as the Zapruder film seems to show, massive exit wound in the back. What's more, they said Kennedy's brain was largely intact when they put his body on the plane for the autopsy in Bethesda, Maryland. So in Parkland, all of these doctors and radiologists and whatever saw this hole in the back of Kennedy's head and then then the body and the story switches to Bethesda, the American Naval Hospital. Brian McKenna, who produced the 1983 Fifth Estate investigation, Who Killed JFK, concluded that when the body reached the Naval Hospital outside Washington, its condition had drastically changed. And there the doctors saw that damage to the head was not there. And, uh, but there was a whole top of Kennedy's head was gone. And it was like, <laughs> this can't be happening. I mean, this is, it's so beyond outrage. But the facts were very clear. Everybody remembers where they were on November 22nd. And everybody had In McKenna's landmark documentary, he followed author David Lifton, who presented evidence that he said proved the president's body had been tampered with. I mean, you don't alter a body. You don't mess with dead people, uh, dead bodies, and certainly not a president's body. And on the other hand, there's evidence of all these different uh, activities occurring. David Lifton had located and interviewed the people who'd been part of the chain of custody for Kennedy's body after he died. At Parkland Hospital, an orderly named Aubrey Reich wrapped the president in a white sheet before placing him in a coffin and closing the lid. You didn't use a body bag for no, the president? Sir. No way. Absolutely no question about that? No way. How can you be certain? I was there. And I, you remember? I remember picking him up. I, I was one that, that had the blood on my shirt and everything from the, the body. And Aubrey Reich says the presidential casket was an expensive one, made of bronze. And at Dallas Airport, that's what we saw loaded onto Air Force One. After Lyndon Johnson was sworn in as the new U.S. president, they began the flight back to the Capitol. Upon landing, the bronze coffin was removed from the cargo bay and loaded into a hearse for transport to the Naval Hospital in Bethesda, Maryland, where the autopsy would be performed. Dennis David was a naval officer on duty at Bethesda when the body arrived. 
but in 1983, he said the casket he unloaded wasn't bronze. We offloaded a casket and it was carried into the autopsy room. Uh, this casket is a plain gray box, if you will, metal box. Anybody that's ever been in Vietnam would know what I'm talking about. We shipped hundreds of bodies out of there in the same type of casket. It's just a plain shipping casket. It was a very plain casket. And when I... It was medical technician Paul O'Connor who opened the casket in the autopsy room. There was nothing fancy about it as far as being bronze. Uh, it wasn't bronze. At the end of this hall at the Bethesda Naval Hospital, the autopsy began. If the president's body had left Dallas wrapped in a white sheet, that's not what Paul O'Connor found, as he told the Fifth Estate. He opened the whole casket up and there was a gray body bag, yeah. zip shut. We unzipped the body bag and the president's body was lifted out of the, of the body bag. Uh, it's completely naked except for a sheet wrapped around his head, a bloody sheet. But there was more. Remember, the doctors in Dallas reported the president's brain was mostly intact when it left there. But that's not what they discovered in Bethesda. We got the last part of the sheet off. There was a, just a gasp in the room. And I looked down and I said to myself, my God, there's no brain. It's all gone. In this photo, the man in the white medical gown was X-ray technician Gerald Custer, who says when he X-rayed John Kennedy's skull, there essentially was no brain remaining. I could fit both of my hands right inside the skull cavity. And like I had mentioned, that uh, I brought my hands back and there were still little pieces of uh, brain stem, or brain cells that I had to take off my hands. And there was no blood on it. But for some reason, the final autopsy report stated the brain they'd examined was almost complete. I don't know where they got it from. Uh, it surely wasn't the president's. As outlandish as it may sound, David Lifton believes the evidence suggests that between his death in Dallas and arrival in Bethesda, John Kennedy's body was secretly removed from the bronze coffin, his wounds surgically altered. Then he was sent ahead in that gray metal casket to arrive before the autopsy. Essentially, it was a medical forgery seemingly intended to prove the fatal shot could only have come from Lee Harvey Oswald's gun. Now, 30 years since our first story, more than 50 since JFK died, the issues surrounding his assassination remain the focal point of writer David Lifton's career, if not his life. After so long, it's been 50 years now, half a century, what does it matter if Oswald acted alone or not? Well, I'm going to use the word that I don't like to use, but, it, but basically we had a coup. That's what this is all about. Not about a second assassin or whether there's somebody hiding behind a fence or a bush. Is the story that Oswald shot the president a true story or a fictional story? If it's a true story, Johnson became president by a quirk of fate. If it's a fictional story, he, came, he became president by design. Now, I say it's a fictional story because the evidence has been, is fraudulent. It was a conclusion former producer Brian McKenna came to agree with. And what we're witnessing with all of these things happening was the cover-up of the murder. And the most graphic, um, in a sense outrageous, uh, piece of the puzzle was what happened to the Kennedy, to the president's body. The declassified documents released recently say nothing about the president's body or his brain. But not all the Kennedy files have yet been made public. 
And that is why, as you'll see when we come back, there now is growing pressure to release those final secrets. The overwhelming majority of Americans are on our side. Release it all now. And when that happens, we're going to learn something very new and very interesting about the assassination of JFK. I'm quite confident of that. There's always more to our stories. You can stay connected to The Fifth Estate on Twitter. Get the latest on upcoming shows and special video features. He is unquestionably an American icon. The most glamorous president ever. With a White House called Camelot for a reason. So it should come as no surprise John Kennedy's assassination would generate five million pages of documents, of which, even after the recent release, thousands remain in the National Archives in Washington, still kept secret. According to many who have followed this story for decades, like investigative journalist Brian McKenna, those final files are likely the crucial ones. Well, I think we were in the crown jewels now that the fact that they're still trying to hide this stuff, there's something explosive there. I mean, all of the, the, the principal players are dead. So why, why are they still defending this? Why are they still you know, putting a stone circle around it and saying no one can go there? Donald J. Trump! Yet in the name of national security, President Donald Trump has pushed the deadline for release of the final documents to April 2018. Author Jeff Morley isn't convinced it will happen even then. What the fact that they didn't comply with the law tells us is they intend to keep this some of this material secret indefinitely. And what and I say it stands to reason, it's almost axiomatic, that the most the things that they don't release are going to be the most sensitive. Now some people say, well, they're just hiding nothing. I wonder about that. If, if they're hiding it, they're hiding it for a reason. And they're going to they're try and hide this story. So what is still being hidden? Perhaps CIA secrets. Morley has investigated the surveillance of Lee Harvey Oswald by both the CIA and FBI, especially after Oswald met KGB assassinations officer Valery Kostikov in the months before Kennedy was killed. Oswald comes back to the United States and the CIA never says, well, to the FBI, you know, why don't you go introduce, you know, go interview that guy and find out why was he talking to Kostikov? That never happened. It wasn't that the CIA ignored evidence that Oswald was a threat to the president. They ignored proof that he was a threat to U.S. security. It's a dog that didn't bark in the old Sherlock Holmes story. It's like, why? That's the thing that you would have expected to happen. The dog should have barked at Oswald. And it doesn't. And that enables him to go to Dealey Plaza. Given all the revelations, former Fifth Estate producer Brian McKenna says he's come to a troubling conclusion. I think it's pretty clear that, that Oswald was a CIA agent at this point. And it's, I mean, the evidence is now just piling up and piling up that they were, you know, they were running him, they were controlling him. And I think we're getting closer to the possibility that CIA officers were manipulating Oswald before. Now, they could have been manipulating him for other purposes, like to gather intelligence or 
you know, lure the, C- the KGB into something, or they could be manipulating him for something that was going to happen on November 22nd. That part of the story we don't know. But what these documents do for me is they heighten that possibility. The possible rationales for killing Kennedy abound. Reports he intended to withdraw U.S. troops from Vietnam. A change of heart about deposing Fidel Castro. His initiatives to end the Cold War with the Soviets. Any or all could have made Kennedy a target at home or abroad. Indeed, Brian McKenna believes that by 1963, John Kennedy's policies made him persona non grata to many in the U.S. government and military. Serious stuff. I mean, I believe there was a coup d'etat. That's what happened on November 22nd, 1963. There was this violent change in power in the United States, and, uh, and it's never been the same since. Years later, in Havana with former Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, McKenna met and spoke with Fidel Castro. Castro and Kennedy certainly had differences, but they both clashed with the CIA. It made for an interesting chat with the Cuban leader. Um, I said, can we talk about the Kennedy assassination? And he said, yes. And I said, so um, was it the anti Castro Cubans? He said, a lot of them were involved, but they, they couldn't have been alone. And, uh, and he just said, the CIA. There may well be an institutional reluctance to release, but for those seeking the secrets, there's always hope. Do you ever expect to see that released? Yeah, I, I do expect it. I do expect it to be released. It's it's not going to be easy. The thing that people like me have going for us, the overwhelming majority of Americans are on our side. Release it all now. And as long as that's true, I think that the public pressure will be able to push all of this material out into the open. And when that happens, we're going to learn something very new and very interesting about the assassination of JFK. I'm quite confident of that. I think something's going to happen. I really do. I, uh, it may take another five, ten years, hopefully not beyond that, but I think that there's something explosive is going to happen in the Kennedy story. And I think we're going to find out there's a real reason why they're hiding documents uh, even now. 54 years later and counting, many are convinced the killing of President John F. Kennedy goes far beyond the lone gunman and the magic bullet that are still the U.S. government's official story. But unless and until those remaining records are finally released, the haunting question will remain as well. Who killed JFK? According to the official story, Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone killer of John Kennedy. Oswald told police and reporters he was a patsy. Before his story could be verified, Oswald met a man inside the Dallas police station. He's been shot. He's been shot. shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. Now, the story you didn't hear in Dallas. Can't see who has been hit, if anybody's been hit, but apparently something is wrong here. Something is terribly wrong. You'll meet a beautiful spy. They wanted me to kill him. They said if I didn't kill him, that that they'd have to go to war because he was turning communist. And he was evil, and there's this nonstop brainwashing, pure brainwashing, I could call that. 
You know, when you're young, dumb, vulnerable, 18, and already wounded with no parents to guide you or help you, or they were just there day and night. A crusading DA. John Kennedy was killed because he refused to send combat troops to Vietnam. And a dangerous woman who claimed Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone, according to everyone that she was talking to and Mark Lane. She met with me and she said, I'm going to break open the Kennedy assassination. I said, you are wonderful. And she said, don't smile, I'm going to really do it. I'm going to devote all of my energy to this. Conspiracy theories or facts? Mark Lane sort of, the, I, I think, is the pioneer for the conspiracy theories and certainly is the reason that America started to change its mind. Um, he has been a persistent uh, critic of the government's position. I just happen to think that he's wrong on almost every position in his book. Most people continue to have doubts. And those doubts will remain because of Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby denied the world the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. city known for its Cajun cuisine and Mardi Gras madness, a kind of Dixieland decadence known only to Bourbon Street. But it's also a city where mafia history looms as large as the Mississippi, led for decades by a man known as Carlos Marcello. And many here think it was Marcello and the mob that murdered JFK. Is there a New Orleans connection to that deadly day in Dallas? Because Bobby Kennedy had targeted Carlos Marcello. John Davis, a cousin of Jacqueline Kennedy, wrote the book Mafia Kingfish. He believes that Robert Kennedy's crusade against Marcello and other mafia bosses backfired in a big way on November 22, 1963. Marcello was known to have uh, sworn vengeance against the Kennedys on at least three occasions. Marcello was no mere mobster. He ruled the $2 billion a year criminal empire and was believed to be the most politically powerful crime boss in the country with connections ranging all the way to Washington. And it was uh, sort of an absolute monarchy with Carlos Marcello, uh, the boss, the supreme boss. But Marcello's reign was threatened in the late 50s when Robert Kennedy turned up the heat first as counsel to a Senate committee investigating organized crime, then as attorney general. Bobby Kennedy had his sights set on the mob. Bobby Kennedy, when he took over as uh, attorney general, uh, told an associate, I want to be known as the guy who broke the mafia. And they really meant business. Kennedy's war on the mob made national news when he grilled Teamsters boss Jimmy Hoffa at the Senate hearings. And I just don't recall can't remember what you talked about, and you can't remember what it, whether he was in your room. It wouldn't have been anything of any importance, Mr. Kennedy, and I can't recall it. And when Marcello was called to testify, he reportedly infuriated Robert Kennedy by taking the fifth 51 times. Kennedy retaliated, Davis says, by having Marcello deported on an immigration violation. But Marcello came back, and it was then, Davis believes, that he plotted his revenge. He outlined a plan to killed President Kennedy in order to neutralize his brother Bobby, who was making his life hell. For such a plan to work, the mob would need the right players. He's been shot. 
He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. Item. It's long been thought that Ruby may have been on a mission from the mob to silence Oswald. Item. Fifteen years after the Warren Commission announced that Oswald had acted alone, the House Assassinations Committee said there was a 95% probability of a conspiracy. And it pointed out that Marcello had the motive, means, and the opportunity. I think, though, that if I had been Mr. Marcello and I was mad at somebody, it wouldn't have been the president I shot, it would have been his brother. His brother was the one who was trying to deport him and who stayed on him like butter on bread. Not all New Orleans buy the Marcello murder theory. Rosemary James is a former reporter who covered Marcello. The suggestion that he killed the president uh, for that reason, I think, is a little strong. If you want to kill the dog, you don't chop off its tail, which would, would be Bobby Kennedy, I suppose. You, you cut the head off, and then the dog dies, tail and all. Jim Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney, never believed organized crime was behind the Kennedy killing. He had his own theories, and it didn't bother him, he said, to be a lonely voice. First of all, <clears throat> let me remind you of the old saying that uh, one man with the truth constitutes a majority. He said he'd uncovered evidence of deep conspiracy in the murder of John Kennedy, a conspiracy that was at the highest levels of the American government. Garrison's last theory was that the conspiracy had been directed by national intelligence agencies angered by Kennedy's policies in Southeast Asia. John Kennedy was killed because he refused to send combat troops to Vietnam. Aside from Oswald, Garrison charged two New Orleans residents with being involved, David Ferry and Clay Shaw. Shaw was a high-profile businessman who Garrison claimed worked for the CIA. But by the time Garrison went to trial, Ferry was dead, and from the start, his case against Shaw seemed shaky. There were witnesses who said they had seen Shaw conspire with Ferry and Oswald to kill Kennedy, but their reliability was highly questionable. One witness, Charles Spiesel. Garrison describes one of Spiesel's experiences on the witness stand. The uh, defense counsel um, said, in effect, now, Mr. Spiesel, uh, isn't it a fact that uh, your daughter goes to LSU? And he said, yes. And he said, Mr. Spiesel, isn't it a fact that when she leaves, every year when she leaves for LSU, before she leaves, you take her fingerprints? Oh, yes, I do. And isn't it a fact, Mr. Spiesel, when she gets back, you take her fingerprints again? Oh, yes, I take her fingerprints when she gets back. And he says, why do you do that? He says, well, I want to compare them and make sure she's the same girl I sent to LSU. Perhaps not surprisingly, the jury returned a verdict in favor of Clay Shaw after just one hour of deliberation. But Garrison claims the two jurors were leaning toward conviction and that others believed in part of the case. The other ten, as, as you probably know, concluded that we had shown that there, that there was a conspiracy to kill John Kennedy, but uh, that we had not been unable to, to completely prove uh, uh, a reason for Shaw's participation beyond a reasonable doubt. Shaw's life was ravaged by the trial and its aftermath. He died in 1974, a broken man, but Garrison has never wavered from his belief that the trial was necessary and that his basic conspiracy theory is correct. It was in New Orleans that it was found that the murder of John Kennedy was faked and the United States government was involved in the murder. 
and that we were right about it. Jim Garrison in the New Orleans connection does not impress this man, Gerald Posner. Posner is a skeptic and an investigative writer with strong opinions that he says are backed up with facts in a book called Case Closed. This is Oswald absolutely enjoying the moment. Oswald, he didn't want to be captured, but once captured, he's going to make everybody go through it. He's going to make them work that weekend, and he's going to make them believe that he had nothing to do with it and put the whole world through knowing who he is. Um, I'm furious with him. He's the man with blood on his hands, who today is considered an innocent patsy. He got away with it as far as history is concerned, and he got his wish. We're still talking about him 30 years later. Absolutely no question. 100% I put my professional reputation on the line. That's the man that killed Jack Kennedy, not as part of any conspiracy. We had Posner screen some rare videotape. On parts of it, he listened to the story of this woman, Morita Lorenz. She was Fidel Castro's mistress. Too many bases, mob, FBI, CIA. You never know if the bullet flies your way or a 22 comes to the window. Who is the culprit? Marina Lorenz tells a fascinating story. It's one that I just happen to think is absolutely wrong. I spoke to the investigators who dealt with her for hundreds of hours in the government. They tell me on the record she led them down so many paths that were dead ends. She's just not credible on the assassination. Oh, it's a dramatic story. There's no wonder. She was Castro's mistress. The, uh, I believe that's true. What's difficult to tell with Marita is what's real and what's not real. Sifting that out will give you plenty of gray hairs. They sent her to uh, Cuba, killed Fidel. She says she was a uh, CIA operative, uh, so that's her claim. She met Ozzy, she said. Met Oswald, knew Jack Ruby, took a cross-country trick with Jack Ruby. It's absolutely fascinating. You couldn't write material as good as this if you wanted to. I just happen to think that there's not a shred of it that's, that's accurate. Born in 1940 to German parents, Marita never led what you would call a typical life. Her father was a Commodore in the German Navy, and much of her childhood was spent traveling the world. It was aboard his luxury liner that she met and later fell in love with Fidel Castro. It was an intense love affair. He was uh, loving. I know a lot of people won't like that. He was uh, interesting. He wasn't the average boy around the corner. He was uh, the uh, dictator, prime minister of Cuba. It was her passionate affair with a new prime minister that would lead Marita, now pregnant with Castro's child, into the world of international espionage. One day, the head of security for the Cuban Air Force a man named Francisco Fiorini called upon Marita and said, I just came from a meeting. Fidel is planning to murder you and the baby. You're an embarrassment. His real name was not Francisco Fiorini. His real name was Frank Sturgis. He was an operative for the Central Intelligence Agency. Frank Sturgis was a shadowy contact operative for the CIA working in Cuba. But was he attempting to save Marita? Or was his story intended to build Marita's hatred for the man many feared was forming an alliance with the Soviet Union. They wanted me to kill him. They said if I didn't kill him that, that they'd, have, they'd have to go to war because he was turning communist and he was evil and this this non-stop brainwashing, pure brainwashing, I could call that. You know, when you're young, dumb, vulnerable, 18 and already wounded with no parents to guide you or help you or they were just there, day and night. Marita's mission to kill Castro would fail. Somehow he knew, and he pulled out his 45. He said, okay, you don't, come on, go ahead, mata me. 
Hmm? Kill me. Kill me. I said, I could, you know. I could. And he said, oh, yes, you could, but you won't, because nobody will kill me. Castro was right. She couldn't do it. He could have killed her, but did not. He allowed Marita to flee to Miami, where Sturgis then trained her as part of a group called Operation 40. Every United States president has a group of bad boys. I was the only girl. It's a group of trained assassins that just do very high-priority assassinations. Their mission was to invade Cuba and eliminate Castro. But President Kennedy refused to supply them with adequate air support. So many opposed to Castro blamed Kennedy for the failed Bay of Pigs invasion. They hated him for lack of air cover for the Bay of Pigs invasion. That was one thing. They hated him because he was catering to the minority races, the blacks, right? And for Vietnam, all I did, all I heard was hate, hate, hate. It was only after that fateful trip to Dallas with Sturgis and a man she'd come to know as Ozzy that Marita says she realized just how deep that hatred ran. Ozzy, the one I recognized after Kennedy was shot, he was with us in uh, the Bay of Pigs uh, training camps. I really didn't know him that well. He was a part of that Sturgis group. Ozzy, of course, was Lee Harvey Oswald. Marita later was to claim that she left Oswald, Jack Ruby, CIA Station Chief E. Howard Hunt, and Frank Sturgis together in a Dallas hotel room with rifles and maps 24 hours before the infamous moment. That startling claim led her to being called before the House Committee on Assassinations. Testimony she claims Frank Sturgis warned her not to give. He said, you know the consequences if you talk. I had received an anonymous phone call that uh, Sturgis was coming in town to kill Marita. Jimmy Rothstein, then a New York Police Department intelligence detective, followed up on the tip. He arrested Sturgis inside Marita's apartment, allegedly attempting to make good on his threat. But the mysterious CIA man was not easily kept behind bars. After we arrested him, he was entitled, he was entitled to a phone call. And uh, in I made that call myself, which was to Gaetan Fonzi. Gaetan Fonzi was the investigator for the House Committee on Assassinations. It seemed a strange call for him to make, but in the tangled web of the CIA, things are seldom what they seem. The call got Sturgis released. Still, Marita decided to testify. I gave them what I had, group photographs. Everything I wrote was crossed out, marked out put in parentheses, and they totally altered it. Now, years after she began her career as a spy, Marita must constantly look over her shoulder for the men for whom she once worked. No question about that. I can't argue with Marita on that. That she's right on. Kennedy had a lot of enemies. Mob hated him. Anti-Castro Cubans hated him. Whole host of people. CIA hated him. A lot of people may have been plotting to kill him. I don't deny that. All I'm saying is Oswald wasn't part of the plot. Within days of the Kennedy murder, a young New York lawyer, Mark Lane, was in Dallas interviewing witnesses. He did not like what he was hearing. Where were you employed on November 22nd, 1963? At that time, I was employed as a tower operator for the Union Terminal Company. At 12.30 on November 22nd, Lee Bowers was here in this railroad tower. From the window, he could see the motorcade's progress, and he had an unobstructed view of the wooden fence atop the grassy knoll. After the assassination, Bowers tried to tell the Warren Commission what he saw that day. But like many other witnesses, he was cut off. 
However, in this 1966 interview with Mark Lane, he was able to finish part of what he had begun to say. There was some unusual occurrence, a flash of light or smoke or, or something, uh, which uh, caused me to feel like something out of the ordinary had occurred there. On a railroad overpass adjacent to the grassy knolls stood a number of train workers whose testimony confirmed Bauer's observations. Well, uh... We all three seen, four seen about the same thing. As At the time, I didn't know what it was, but it sounded like a loud firecracker or a gunshot. And it sounded like it came from the left and in front of us, towards the wooden fence. And there was a puff of smoke that came underneath the trees. Is there any doubt in your mind that that shot came from behind the There's no doubt in my mind. The Warren Commission concluded Lee Harvey Oswald fired three shots, all from the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. But Robert Grodin, co-author of the bestseller High Treason and the photographic consultant to the House Assassination Committee, is one of many who disagree. We have the ear witnesses. We have the medical evidence. It's all consistent. Every bit of evidence in every field shows that at least two shots came from the right front from the area of the stockade fence. Four months after this interview was filmed, Lee Bowers died or was killed in broad daylight on this remote Texas highway. Lee Bowers was heading west here on Highway 67, heading from Midlothian down to Cleburne. And according to an eyewitness, he was driven off the road by a black car. He was talking to the ambulance people and told them that he felt he had been drugged when he stopped for coffee back there a few miles in Midlothian. But why would Lee Bowers have been killed when it seemed he had already told all he knew? Walter Rochelle was a friend of Lee's and of his late brother, Monty. Rochelle says Lee Bowers was afraid to tell all he witnessed during the assassination. However, Rochelle revealed the full story to us in an exclusive interview in Dealey Plaza. He said he saw a car pull up. Two men get out of the car. and They were carrying what appeared to be rifles. He said that one gunman apparently positioned himself either on their car or on a car. The other one, I don't recall where he said he was. He said he saw both men fire shots. He could tell by the smoke, the puffs of smoke that came from the rifles. You're saying that Lee Bowers told you that he saw both men fire? Yes, he did. In addition, Texas journalist Ben Jones, one of the first to challenge the official view, says he heard the complete Bowers story. He is the man who said he saw gunmen firing at the president from, uh, from their hidden positions. He didn't see all of them, but he saw two of them that were firing at we the president. Another witness who wasn't questioned by the Warren Commission, a deaf mute, Ed Hoffman, said he observed two men behind the fence and saw at least one shot fired. Further acoustics tests conducted by the House Assassinations Committee determined that at least one shot was almost certainly fired from the knoll. So why was Bowers so afraid to tell the full story? Lee had disappeared for about two days, one night I know for sure, which is very uncharacteristic of him. And when he came back, one of the, uh, his fingers was missing on one of his hands. So Lee gave Monty some excuse for what had happened, which Monty didn't accept. So he called the local hospitals, the uh, clinics, and uh, some doctor's offices, 
And there was no record of anyone, uh, and certainly not Lee, going in and having that taken care of. Shortly after this alleged disappearance and mysterious maiming, Lee Bowers died in that suspicious automobile wreck. At the time I was in Monty's office, he was quite upset because the insurance company had refused to pay the claim. I can't recall too vividly, but I believe that Monty felt that the insurance company did not believe that his death was accidental. Within three years of Kennedy's funeral, at least 18 important witnesses had died or were killed against almost impossible odds. Do you think that certain witnesses or certain people that know more about the Kennedy assassination have been? Well, definitely so. Uh, I don't know exactly the number of people who have died, but I think it's already we have something like 20 people who have died. George DeMoraschelt was a suspected CIA operative and was a close friend of Lee Harvey Oswald. He could not have known when he answered a Dutch journalist's question that his name would be one day added to the list of the dead, but he might have suspected it. In 1977, summoned to testify before the House Select Committee on Assassinations, but just before his scheduled appearance, he was killed by a shotgun blast in Florida. Attorney Mark Lane is a well-known assassination investigator whose most recent book on the case is Plausible Denial. He flew to Florida to challenge the DA on the official verdict of suicide. And he said, Mr. Lane, there, you must know by now there are forces here bigger than you and bigger than me. I'm saying suicide. Whoever was responsible, shadowy characters like George DeMoraschel were not the only people dying mysteriously. And to my left, ladies and gentlemen, a very lovely and charming young lady who's one of my favorite columnists and whom I had the pleasure of knowing for many years, Miss Dorothy Kilgallen. In the early 60s, Dorothy Kilgallen, a nationally known gossip columnist and a panelist on the popular TV show What's My Line, was another one. She had led a glamorous life. She was married to Richard Comar. And when she had an affair, it was with Johnny Ray. You're gonna miss your love and daddy from now more about Johnny Ray later. Dorothy Kilgallen seemed an unlikely person to expose the secrets surrounding JFK's death, but soon after the assassination, she began to do just that, according to everyone that she was talking to and Mark Lane. She met with me and she said, I'm going to break open the Kennedy assassination. I said, you are wonderful. And she said, don't smile, I'm gonna really do it. I'm gonna devote all of my energy to this. Dorothy Kilgallen began to break one important story after another. In March 1964, she scored the ultimate big scoop, an interview with Jack Ruby. It was something no other journalist was able to accomplish. Now we've learned that Kilgallen's link to Ruby was probably Johnny Ray. Official sources tell us that Ruby and Ray, both bisexuals, knew one another from the country's gay underground. She interviewed Jack Ruby in Dallas. She spent eight minutes with him alone um, at his behest. Um, and she was following clues, following a trail consequent to whatever it is that Ruby told her. And Kilgallen followed the trail all over the country. In the fall of 1965, Mark Lane got a telephone call. She said, oh, I have it. I have it. I know what it is, and I'm going to bring it back. And as soon as I bring it back, I want to share it with you this evidence. I have no idea what she was talking about, what the evidence was. 
Lane never got a chance to ask again. Following a late-night meeting with an unknown stranger, Dorothy Kugallen was found dead of a massive overdose of sleeping pills and alcohol. Many suspected murder, but Dr. Michael Baden, who was present at the autopsy, disagrees. I can say that it is almost impossible to force a person to swallow that many pills in a homicidal. It's not a way you can kill somebody readily. Critics say we can never be sure one way or the other because the police made no effort to find the truth. Others believe that the authorities tampered with the death scene. They talked to no one. They interviewed no witnesses. They made no attempt to determine the circumstances around her death the night before. Uh, the autopsy report, all the official, official explanations are just riddled with lies. With Dorothy gone, a prominent voice was silenced. Perhaps more tragically, she never told what it was she knew. After I heard that she died, I went to see Mr. Colmar and expressed my regrets and condolences about her death and said, did she bring anything back? And he said, yes, some papers which she thought apparently were very, very important. And I said, I think maybe she would like me to look at them. He said, I've destroyed them. Enough people have died as a result of this investigation, and uh, I'm putting an end to it now. Mark Lane sort of, the, I, I think, is the pioneer for the conspiracy theories, and certainly is the reason that America started to change its mind. Um, he has been a persistent uh, critic of the government's position. I just happen to think that he's wrong on almost every position in his books. One man with a close-up view of the JFK killing was this doctor, Charles Crenshaw. On that day in Dallas, Crenshaw was a young intern. He never forgot what he saw. The first thing was really the president lying there, but to the left with Jacqueline Kennedy. And there she was in that famous pink suit. Her whole right side was caked with blood. I looked at her and I thought, here's a lady who, in just my own thoughts, she had anger or hatred. She also had disbelief. And also she was, uh, I could see despair. And finally, with her thoughts, she thought he was dead. He had no blood pressure. He barely had a pulse, possibly. And he was breathing occasionally. The doctor saw Kennedy's wounds minutes after the shooting. The drama of his head wound, um, the head wound was in the parietal occipital area and part of the temple. It was a huge blown out hole. The bullet wound entered here and traveled back plowing right through. Mm -hmm. uh, the hairline here, it went in on the right, coming down here, coming across, and that's the reason that huge plowed out area was present and the cerebellum was there. If the bullet had entered from the back, it would have totally removed the cerebellum and gone forward. What you're saying runs contrary to the findings of the Warren Commission, runs contrary to our official version of what happened to President Kennedy. Oh, yeah. I am aware of this very well because it took me 29 years to effectively say or to do and expose my observations in the face of fraternal doctrine, fear, 
naivety. What were you afraid of? What I was really afraid of was my career-mindedness. You were a young man. You were a resident? Thirty years old. Thirty years old. Your mind must have been reeling at this point. Here was your president. You were trying to save his life. What, what was going through your The mind? basic point is it was such a shock. But we treat this, or treated this, every day there at Parkland. So we all almost knew our roles. It was a team approach to resuscitate the patient. And this patient However, just happened to be... However, this patient was the president. And you were never questioned? No, not at all. They did not even do a, uh, a research project enough to find out who all was in the room. Only those people who wrote up their comments or what they saw were called for the Warren Commission. And you, being a young doctor, decided not to write up your comments? I didn't like the way the project was being handled. And afterwards, when uh, everybody in Dallas knew it was Lee Harvey Oswald, and I didn't think so, I was not going to rock the boat. If I had gone against all the other people, the Warren Commission, and created this bomb, I'd have been a pariah, a pariah of our medical community. I could have lost my job. Dr. Baxter and I walked in, she stood up immediately. And he said, Mrs. Kennedy, I'm afraid her husband is dead. And I put my arm around her and she had long, huge shoulders. She was almost my height. So she sat back down again. And that was when I saw, still in that little purse, some brain tissue. And I called her aide, the man that was standing there next to her, aside. And I said, please clean this off. And also hid the head wound and the tracheostomy wound. So the sheet was a little short for him. His toes were sticking out. And so as Ms. Kennedy came in, she touch the cart, the gurney, and kissed his great toe, and then proceeded to go forward up to the head and to stand there holding his right hand while the priest gave him the last rite. And then, as a thought, after all this was over, she took her wedding ring and placed this on his little finger and that was her time i guess and her present to him the official medical examiner's report from washington rejects the doctor's observations that was one of the biggest things that happened at parkland that's what caused all of this not allowing texas law to be in place our pathologist should have done the autopsy at parkland and he tried to follow the Texas law. And the Secret Service, they formed, looked like a herd of locusts, a phalanx around the coffin. And Mrs. Kennedy was in the middle with her left hand on the casket. And they were then coming out into the hall. And all of a sudden, there, our forensic pathologist stopped them. Dr. Earl Rose said, halt. This man has to have an autopsy here in the state of Texas. It'll only take 45 minutes, and they would not hear of it. They wanted to get that body out of Dallas. 2.15 p.m. Dallas, the body of the slain president was loaded onto Air Force One. 
Minutes later, Lyndon B. Johnson took the oath of office with Jacqueline Kennedy by his side. p.m. Andrews Air Force Base, Washington. The casket is unloaded for the trip to Bethesda Naval Hospital, where a team of doctors and pathologists will perform the official autopsy. When I viewed the autopsy pictures, they had the frontal part of the cerebrum here and the skull out. So when the picture was taken, you you think they pulled the skin back up over this wound? That's the only thing I can postulate because the back of his head was gone. This was a huge hole. Because mm-hmm. on the right, it was 9 to 10 centimeters across, and you could look right into the brain. Crenshaw says the autopsy photos of the president's wounds are visibly different from the wounds he had witnessed firsthand. But something had happened between Parkland and Bethesda, Maryland. So we're talking about the destruction of evidence because... Yes, definitely. This is a very serious charge that you're making. Why do you think you would have gotten in trouble for having revealed this information then? Let's put it this way. Anyone in 1963 that had any other opinion other than the official opinion was going against the stream. Even that night of November the 22nd, and definitely on the 23rd, everybody knew there was one shooter. Lee Harvey Oswald, a 24-year-old school book depository employee, had been arrested at the Texas Theater shortly after the shooting in Dealey Plaza. He was taken into custody and placed in a cell at police headquarters. With the suspected assassin behind bars, Dr. Crenshaw went home briefly on Friday night. Coming to work that morning... That Saturday morning, even though it was early and still dark, there were people all over the place. It was like a, a fair. Crenshaw stayed the night at Parkland, wakening at 6 a.m. Sunday morning to make the rounds. Meanwhile, across town, preparations for Oswald's transfer to the county jail were underway. He had been interrogated five times, but had never confessed. I didn't shoot anybody, sir. I think this is the man that killed the president. Law enforcement officials never got the chance to try Oswald for the terrible crime of which he was accused. That morning, in the basement of the Dallas police station, Jack Ruby became Oswald's one-man judge, jury, and executioner. Anything to say in your defense? Oswald has been shot. For the second time in three days, a man on the edge of death was delivered into the hands of Dr. Charles Crenshaw and the Parkland trauma team. When Lee Harvey Oswald came in, all of us wanted to save this guy because we had trained so hard. Now, during all this, you received a phone call. I went to the operating supervisor's office, Audrey Bell, and I picked up the phone. And then all of a sudden, this voice like God comes across. This is the president, Lyndon B. Johnson. He said, how is the accused assassin doing? I said, well, he's holding his own. He's critical. He's lost a great amount of blood. We hope we can save him. He said, I want a deathbed statement from the assassin. And all of a sudden, the line was broken. 
Oswald never made a deathbed statement. Crenshaw, like the rest of us, was left with only questions. There is no more vivid demonstration of how haunted we are as a nation by this murder than the steady stream of people who visit Dealey Plaza every day, rain or shine, trying to work out the twentieth century's most confounding mysteries for themselves. For Dr. Charles Crenshaw, Dealey Plaza had its own intimate significance. Only that he was in the front, and this is the place where more witnesses, for a fact, saw a gunman here and a puff of smoke. So where exactly would that be? Right here, behind this fence. Eyewitnesses did report that shots were fired from over the fence on the grassy knoll, and most conspiracy theorists agree with Crenshaw and the eyewitness accounts that the fatal shots did come from the front. What really gets to me is whoever concocted this horrible crime has never let the American people know because it's been covered up so well. Have you ever before or, or are you even now concerned about your own safety? Well, I'm well aware that a number of people who have been close to or around in the assassination have lost their lives, but I would hope now that now we can only have the truth and we wouldn't have to fear. You can always think about it. When, when you walk into an emergency room and you see someone, a, a victim of trauma, uh, blood, uh, your mind will always revert back to that. That was the most, the high point of my life in surgery. I'd trained all my life to do surgery. And the most important patient of my life, we all of us couldn't save. For investigative reporter Gerald Posner, the doctor's story is heartfelt, but not supportive of a conspiracy theory. He says one man alone killed JFK. Dr. Crenshaw is well-intentioned. He believes what he says is true, but I'm convinced he's mistaken. I've spoken to the eight principal doctors who treated Kennedy at Parkland. On the record, Dr. Crenshaw is just wrong in his observations. All the people said Grassy Knoll, many of them are mistaken at the time, go back to the day of the assassination and nobody says Grassy Knoll. So they identify six witnesses, pick a gunman at Dealey, and they only pick the southeast corner of the depository. Many of the witnesses who now say I saw a gunman at the Grassy Knoll have come out 15 and 20 years later, and in some instances, they weren't even at Dealey Plaza. Mark Lane? Mark Lane sort of, the, I, I think, is the pioneer for the conspiracy theories and certainly is the reason that America started to change its mind. Um, he has been a persistent uh, critic of the government's position. I just happen to think that he's wrong on almost every position in his books. For Posner, the case is closed. One lone gunman, Lee Harvey Oswald, killed JFK. It's the official view, but he's in the minority. Most people continue to have doubts. And those doubts will remain because of Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby denied the world the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. Detective Jim Lavelle was handcuffed to Oswald on that fateful day. We asked him to return with us to the scene of the crime, the exact spot where Oswald was shot. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw Ruby standing with the gun by his hand, by his side, and uh, about. 
the same time I saw it and recognized it, he made two quick steps. How it took about a second and a second and a half or less for him to make that move and uh, fired one shot. It was the world's first live televised execution. Millions watched as Jack Ruby pumped a bullet into Oswald's stomach. The press called the 52-year-old nightclub operator a tough guy, a loner. He and I were very close, the two closest members of the family to each other. He was energetic, he's always active, and he always involved us in ways to make money. Jack Ruby was uh, somebody who was always on the make. He uh, was uh, eager to impress people. A lot of this was very superficial. Uh, there, there seemed to be not a, a great deal of depth to the individual. His job was being an organized crime. His personality, he was a little bit of an eccentric kind of a character. Jack Ruby grew up in the mean streets of Chicago's West Side. That's where he got his nickname and, according to experts, an early introduction to the Mafia. Sparky uh, uh, went back to the days in Chicago when he was uh, uh, running uh, envelopes uh, for the Al Capone gang at a, at a dollar an envelope. He moved in mob circles, but he was gregarious. So in the circles he moved, he seems to have met many of the mob luminaries. But Ruby's relatives deny their brother was ever married to the mob. I think if you ask Vito Genovese's family the same question, you would get the same answer. There's no dispute that Jack Ruby was an organized crime figure. David Scheim, author of Contract on America, The Mafia Murder of JFK, says the Warren Commission simply chose to ignore Ruby's underworld connection. It's fairly clear that Ruby, the mobster, killed Oswald in his line of business. Seath Cantor worked for a Dallas newspaper. He knew Jack Ruby personally, and he describes him as a man about town. He played host to members of the Dallas police force, as well as organized crime figures in the notorious strip joint he owned. People come into the club for entertainment, and probably you have to be nice to those kind of people. You don't want to have them for an enemy. Ruby was used as a police informant. He had easy access to headquarters, even attended a briefing on the day Kennedy was killed at which Oswald was presented to the press. Ruby's movements through the weekend were very purposeful. But Ruby's brother Earl says Jack's murder of Oswald was a spur-of-the-moment decision. Oswald uh, was wearing a smile and a snicker, and it just ticked Jack off because, he, first of all, he was a highly impulsive person to begin with. And uh, he hated Oswald in addition to that because he really loved Kennedy. Ruby was convicted of murdering Oswald, sentenced to die in the electric chair. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. That rare film of Jack Ruby is 30 years old and hard to hear. We want you to listen closely. Ruby is saying the world will never know the true facts. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. Ruby spent his last days in a jail cell, ironically, overlooking Dealey Plaza. And although his conviction was overturned, he died of cancer in 1967 before a new trial could be held. JFK, victim of a conspiracy or dead at the hands of a lone gunman? You decide. 
Are there a lot of secrets that you will take to the grave with you that have to do with you, with Jackie, with John F. Kennedy, with the president? Was there ever a time where she confided in you where it went past a friendship or relationship with you and Miss Kennedy? I've been accused of being in love with her. Today, I have a guest here with me, Mr. Clint Hill. Thank you for joining us. Many will say that he's probably the greatest Secret Service agent uh, we've ever had in the history of America. And th th he's been written about, he's been talked about, his experiences with five different presidents, which we'll talk about today. Uh, his experience of working very closely with Jacqueline Kennedy. And he recently wrote a book a year ago, I think May of 2016, called uh, Five President with Lisa McCubbin, which we'll uh, address today as well. So thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. For me, as a kid who grew up in Iran, and I was, you know, and, and we, we see these stories, and my mother would always talk about Jackie Kennedy and John F. Kennedy and, you know, Onassis, and all these stories would always be told to my wife how much she loves Jackie. So first of all, what does it take, Doc? When did you wake up one morning and say, I want to be a Secret Service agent? Like, how did that process take place? Well, it, it started way back when I uh, went to college. My intention was to become a history teacher, to coach athletics. But when I graduated, I had to go into the Army. Uh, it was during the toward the end of the Korean War. And when I went through the initial basic training, they then selected me to go to the Army Intelligence Center, and they trained me to be a special agent in counterintelligence. So this isn't a choice. They selected me. They selected me. Got it. I really enjoyed the type of investigations we were doing, surveillance and things of that nature. So when it was time to get out of the Army, I was... I thought, well, you know, I don't think I want to teach history anymore. I want to continue doing what I was doing. So I looked around to find an organization that was similar in nature. I found that there was an organization called the U.S. Secret Service that was very small, but very elite, and they were very well known for their great investigative procedures. And so I applied. Trouble was, at the time, there were only 269 agents in the entire organization. Wow. So there weren't any vacancies, so I had to wait. But eventually, within a year, I was selected, trained, and I worked in the field one year, and then I was sent to the White House and was assigned to uh, President Eisenhower during the Eisenhower administration. That's how I came into the Secret Service, and that was my first assignment. Uh, so now, this isn't something like when you're in high school saying, I want to grow up and I want to work closely at the White House with presidents. This was not like a dream. This is just something accidental no. that happened. I never had any idea <laughs> that that's where I would end up. One of the things that I'm fascinated with is people who loved what they did. Like there is, there is a magical, like I live through you when I'm reading these books, I'm living through you. What did you love so much about, so much about being a Secret Service agent? Well, it's, the camaraderie with the other agents was very important and Got we it. really, it was like a group of brothers, a band of brothers that we worked with. And at that time, it was all male. We had no female agents until 1971 and 72. So that was important. But also, there was that sense of uh, they had given you this responsibility. It was something that you really wanted to do your very best because you know you couldn't let up or couldn't let them down. I enjoyed going to work every day. It was a thrill just to be able to do that. There's a part in the book you talk about how the first time you were given White House duties and you're going in and then you're so nervous until the moment you walked 
through the White House. Once you were in there, there was a certain sense of calm. You saw the paintings, you saw this history. Mm -hmm. What what was that like the first time going into the White House? Well, it's very emotional, you know, because first of all, you're you're somewhat apprehensive and afraid because you don't want to let yourself down. You want to do your best, and you know that you have this immense responsibility facing you. And so it's uh, it's a very challenging situation. And then you get in there, and then you start to meet the supervisors and the agents, and they make you cause you to relax because they're just like you are. And uh, you finally come to the conclusion you're working around the president. You realize, well, you know, he's a human being too, just like me. He puts his pants on one leg at a time, and so it's a much easier atmosphere than you initially think it's going to be. When you first start working with Eisenhower, he's the first president. Mm-hmm. You work with the general, right? Five-star general. Yeah, in How- fact, his, his, he preferred to be called general, and he was called general by most of his friends, including his wife, rather than president. He loved his, the army and the career he had there. We called him the boss, but he was a very congenial individual. He was easy to work with because he was always on schedule. The only challenging, not only one, but we had some challenging times with him in foreign countries because the crowds were so large. He was such a idol type figure to people in India or to... Why do you think, though, was different when you write about him than some of the other ones? Why was he such a... Why was he idolized? Because of his uh, actions in World War II. The fact that he was the supreme commander of Allied forces and they, they had uh, defeated the Germans and then the Japanese. Clint, one of the things I'm, I'm fascinated with and curious about is, okay, so who was who had the biggest personality like when you work with some of these presidents who was when they walked into the room you felt it who had a sense of humor who was charming who was fun to be around who actually talked to you guys what what could you tell us a little bit about these different five personalities that you work closely with well they all had this gigantic ego and they were uh, uh, bigger than life uh, I would say that the one individual who probably had more influence with Congress and everything would have been Johnson because he had been there. Uh, he had been a powerful member of the U.S. Senate. Uh, then he was vice president. And now he came into the presidency after the assassination. And he knew how to work the House and the Senate. He knew everybody that worked up on the Hill. And he could get things done. He would, And he was willing to make deals. He was willing, if you would vote on what he wanted done, he was willing to have that extra post office built in your district or that new bridge over that cricket river or the, whatever it was that you really needed in your district. So he was a wheeler and dealer. Yes, he was, he was a wheeler and dealer. Got it. Uh, personality wise, they all were, uh, the only one of the five I worked with that, uh, uh, didn't really have a close relationship with the agents would have been probably, uh, Nixon. Nixon did not. Not really. He was rather cold. He, you know, we knew Nixon pretty well because he had been vice president for eight years under Eisenhower. And during that time, we had a very small group of people with just two. But we knew him. We knew his staff. And then when he lost the election in 60 to Kennedy, and then he went back to California, and then he lost the governorship there to Pat Brown, and then he came back in 68 and won the election. But when he came into the White House in January of 1969, he brought with him a different staff. They weren't the same people that had been with him 
when he was vice president. Some of them, but they were kind of at arm's length. The ones that were up close and personal that really working around him were a group of individuals that we weren't familiar with. They turned out to, to cause problems for him, and he caused problems for himself. Nixon was a, turned out to be somewhat of a uh, loner. You know, when a person is elected to the office of the president, one of their big things is they're now going to be in the Oval Office. Well, Nixon had the Oval Office, but he then established an office for himself in the executive office building, which is adjacent to the White House right across a little street. And he spent considerable time in that office, a lot of times alone. This is before or after Watergate? Uh, this is during, before and after. Got it. So this is just how he is, period. It has yeah. nothing to do with Watergate. Not really. That was his personality. He'd, he seemed to have changed during that period between the time he left the vice presidency in 1961 until he came back as president in 1969. What do you think caused it? Like, I'm a president now, you better no, respect me, or is it just... Well, you know, he, he created an, en en an enemies list. There were certain people that he really thought were his enemies. Trouble Internally, in the States. Yeah, if they were members of the press, various people. Trouble was, he left off one person out of that list. The number, you should have put this particular person at the top. And it should have been Richard Milhouse Nixon, because he was his own worst enemy. Got it. He created problems for himself. I'll give you an example. When the Pentagon Papers were uh, released and printed in the New York Times, Nixon re requested his staff to find out where they came from. They found, found out they came from a guy named Ellsberg. Then they found out that Ellsberg has a psychiatrist, and he ordered them to break into the psychiatrist's office, burglarize it, which is unlawful, to find out what they could about the, his papers and his background. Well, that gave the people in his staff the idea that they could go ahead and break the law as long as they were doing it for the president. And subsequently, when Watergate happened, that's exactly what they were doing, mm -hmm. similar to what they had done in the Ellsberg case. And so he caused problems. Maybe he didn't directly tell them to do that, but they got the idea from what he had told them to do previously. Interesting character. He did very good on China. I mean, he obviously gets a lot of credit for China. Absolutely. There's a lot of, lot of things that they say about his personality. I was in Boston a couple months back, mm -hmm. and I went to the JFK, John F. Kennedy uh, uh, Presidential Library, which is a beautiful, I'm sure you, it's a beautiful, beautiful. Been there um, many times. I mean, when I'm walking through and you hear the stories about how this kid was the underdog of all the sons and no one expected him to be the president, it was the older brother, Joe in the you know the war what happened with him as a plane and all this stuff and then all of a sudden one day momentum comes and he runs and the world falls in love with this guy right and he becomes president how was it working with him oh he was a great guy to work with he was really down to earth he treated all the agents as if they were the, his best friend uh, he was just a pleasure to work with and i had the opportunity because i i got assigned to mrs kennedy and i wasn't very happy about that because I really wanted to be assigned to the president because being with the first lady was kind of like being on the second team, you know, and being with the president was where all the action always was. And uh, But because of that, I did have a pretty close relationship with the president because I was responsible for his wife and his children, mm. and he wanted to make sure that they were always okay. Your book here, uh, Miss Kennedy and Me, which is also a New York Times bestseller, fascinating book, and maybe what we could do is 
you know, with your permission, have you sign a few of these, and we can give some of them away to the viewers as gifts. I'd be glad to. Um, so let, let's talk about Miss Kennedy and your relationship, if you don't mind. So I figure in a situation like this, John F. Kennedy is away a lot. He's constantly away a lot, and you're with her all the time. So you weren't just a Secret Service agent to uh, Miss Jacqueline Kennedy. It sounded like it went from that to a relationship to a friendship. So how did that work out? Would she talk to you? Would she confide in you? Would she say, you know, Clint, I'm going through this, and would you, you know, lift her up? Was there was there those types of relationships? Oh, that sure, there you? were a lot of those. Yeah, because she and I were alone a lot of time because we'd go out to Middleburg, Virginia, where they had leased a, a place out there so she could ride horses. She loved to ride. We'd have very interesting, long conversations about various topics. We developed a very close. Uh, friendship. What would you say was the most special thing about Jack? Well, a lot of people don't realize how active she was. They kind of see her as this prima donna with involving clothing mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. But she was really into history of the White House. She started a process of bringing back into the White House historical pieces of furniture, paintings. Mm -hmm. She wanted the people to be proud of the American heritage. She initiated a program where they sold uh, pamphlets describing what was going on. They're still doing that today. I mean, she did a lot of things that a lot of people don't know about. She was very energetic, very active. She loved to water ski, play tennis. Was an excellent horsewoman. Rode in some horse shows. Very dedicated to the two children, Carolina John. You see today Air Force One that beautiful blue colored paint with the United States of America. Mrs. Kennedy did that. Back in 1961, Air Force One had an orange nose cone, and she thought it should be kind of updated. And she worked with uh, some designers and everything, and they came up with this uh, paint job, and it's been there ever since 1962. Wow. When you read the book, you look for controversy. There's not a lot of controversy. It's a lot of good stories, like here's mm -hmm. what happened, here's what happened. Are there a lot of secrets that you will take to the grave with you that have to do with you, with Jackie, with John F. Kennedy, with the presidents? Sure. Lots of them. Like, was there ever a time where um, she confided in you where it went past a friendship or relationship with you and Jack, uh, with Miss Kennedy? No, I don't think so. No. Uh you're a good-looking. I've seen your pictures. You're a very good-looking man. You well, know, she's a, she's an attractive. No, there was never anything romantic between. Okay, us. got it. That didn't. There, exist. there is a little bit of that story. Where was there? Because it, it doesn't seem like it's just a friendship. It seems like it went very, very. The friendship yeah. was like when you read the book, you fall in love with the story of the two of you. There is a story there. It's fascinating. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it's done so well. You go on Amazon, you do reviews. You need a few days to read all the reviews. It's eleven hundred reviews on Amazon. That doesn't happen by accident. I know uh, I've been accused of being in love with her. You've been accused of being in love with her? Yeah. Well, it sounds like it, just so you know that. I mean, the way it's written, it sounds like the way... And I did admire her, and, and I yeah. thought the world of her. She was a great lady to work with, and, and it was wonderful to have someone like she and have the relationship we had. She trusted me implicitly, and so uh, that really made my job much easier. Got it. So, like I said, there's some secrets that you'll go to the grave. There's some things we'll, we'll never know, but... With every president, of there's course, something you know, know some things you'll, you, you'll never know. So, so let's, let's talk about the other part. My mother always liked Aristotle Onassis, okay? 
He's mm -hmm. a pretty interesting guy to like as well. And you read this in all over the place, you know, whether it's in a book and all the other things on what John F. Kennedy once instructed you about uh, uh, Aristotle Onassis. He had this big personality, right? He did, and he once said, whatever you do in Greece, do not let Mrs. Kennedy cross paths with Aristotle Onassis. Mm -hmm. What did he mean by that? That was in 1961, though. This was in May of 1961. I was going to Paris to break, do the advance arrangements for Mrs. Kennedy in Paris. And then I was going to go from Paris to Athens to make the arrangements for Mrs. Kennedy to visit Athens as sure. a guest of Prime Minister Mrs. Chairman Lease. And the president knew that I was doing that, so he called me to the Oval Office. And I went into the Oval Office, and he was there, and his brother Robert, the Attorney General, was there. And he said, Clint, he said, I understand you're going to do the advance for Mrs. Kennedy in Greece. And I said, yes, Mr. President, that's correct. He said, one thing I want to make sure of, and that is that Mrs. Kennedy never crosses paths with Aristotle Onassis while you're there. I said, fine, Mr. President, that's what'll, that'll be the case. So I went back to my office, and I got to thinking about it, and I thought, I wonder why he would tell me that. So th the agent who was going to help me in Greece, his uncle was a chief of police in Athens. The agent's name was Kenny Giannoulis. And so I called Ken, and I said, said told him what... President Kennedy had said to me, and I said, do you have any notes or any idea why he would say this? So he said, let me check. So he did, and he came back to me and said, look, he said, Onassis is being sued by the United States government for $7 million over a deal with some liberty ships that he is purchasing from the United States government. And it appears that because there's a congressional election coming up, they don't want a photograph of the two of them to appear. If Mrs. Kennedy is photographed with Onassis, it's going to be detrimental to any Democrat running mm. for office in 1962. It was as simple as that. And she never did cross paths with Onassis in 1961. <laughs> There's obviously some crossing paths that took place eventually, but it's it's random when you when you hear that story and the explanation the gentleman gave you and to have that happen a few years later where this leads into something that one one from an outsider would look at this and say was there something going on that john f kennedy you know he was a little bit concerned about because right. you know he had a reputation on had a reputation for well he was a womanizer yeah womanizer yeah he was i mean be honest with you i didn't get along with the guy very well how was he was he was he was he was he a charming guy or was he an arrogant cocky guy or both okay he was charming when he wanted to be, and he was a interesting combination. He was right? a mean SOB when he wanted to be. Got it. Let's go to November twenty second, sixty three. Okay, sure. So the one day that you read about in history books, we will read about forever to come. Every year, there's a movie, there's a documentary, there's an article, there's a book, there's something that's going to be written about this. This is going to happen every single year because it was the most admired, loved, let's just say, U.S. president in a long time. Uh, him and Reagan were probably in the same category, Republican and Democrat. They were both loved and admired. What happened that morning? Was there anything different about it? How did that whole thing, you know, start off? Were you, was there anything that was a red flag that this day doesn't feel good, et cetera, et cetera? Or was it just a normal day? You're in Dallas, you're driving, you know, how was that day for you? Well, let me, let me go back to how this all started. In June of 1963, President Kennedy met with 
Vice President Johnson and Governor Connolly down in El Paso, Texas. And they discussed the upcoming presidential election, which was in 1964. They decided that because of how close it was in 60, they really needed to carry the two states in the South that had the most electoral votes to win in 64. That meant Florida and Texas. So they agreed that they would campaign in those two states. So Kennedy went to Florida November 16th, 17th, and 18th, I think it was. Then we took off on November 21st for Texas. Now all this time, the crowds were extremely large. They were very vociferous, enthusiastic, but they were very friendly all, all the way along. They were really friendly. Was, is there any controversy at this time? So everyone liked, there's not really The only major. controversy we saw, there were a few signs that said something about civil rights or a few that said something about Cuba. Other than that, there was nothing. And those people were so far in the minority that, I mean, nobody really paid any attention to them. Sure. And by the time we got to Fort Worth, which was late at night on the 21st, we got there about 11.05 in the evening, it was raining. And we got to the Hotel Texas. There were five or 6,000 people right outside the front door. We had to almost fight our way to get into the hotel. It was so, I mean, everything was, from a political point of view, it was a smash hit because there was big crowds, and that's what they were looking for was exposure. Win south, win Texas, and win Florida. And they thought if they could uh, get the president out and among the public there in Texas, and that, so the next morning we wake up in Fort Worth and uh, first thing we realize is that uh, we were given a uh, brochure that was being handed out here in Dallas. It was a photograph of President Kennedy. In other words, it said, wanted for treason. And uh, this was being passed among the populace here in Dallas by some organization. So we knew, you know, that Dallas wasn't going to be all completely friendly. And we had an indication that there might be a problem with some people because about a month before, the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Adlai Stevenson, had come to Dallas and he made it, was making a speech. He was heckled. Uh, he was driven off the stage and hit with a placard. The night before we came to Dallas, Chief Curry from the Dallas Police Department got on TV and pleaded with the people of Dallas to be courteous, to show respect, uh, which is very unusual. We did not have any intelligence information other than that incident with Stevenson, other than the fact we knew that the population in Dallas was somewhat split. There were those who really liked Kennedy, but there were those who really disliked him. But that was not unusual for anywhere in the South, because there were persons in the South that were very anti-Kennedy. So we arrive at Love Field. Uh, we had the special car that we had flown in to use in San Antonio. And then we moved it from San Antonio to Dallas. And it was, the cars were waiting for us. That car was a Lincoln, specially fabricated automobile. It had a, the capability of a plastic bubble top being used. But we had instructions from the president that the only time that that bubble top was to be used was if it were inclement weather like rain or snow, or if Mrs. Kennedy's hair was going to get all messed up because the wind was blowing too hard. Well, neither of those things existed, so 
no bubble top. So we're going to, but that's what the trip was all about, exposure. They wanted as many people as possible to be able to see President Mrs. Kennedy up close and personal. So we started out from Love Field, drive into the city, and the crowds just started to grow and grow and grow and grow. By the time we got to Main Street, the crowd was so large on each side of the street, at times it was difficult to get through the crowd. We had uh, motorcycle officers on each side of the car, and we just, uh, I, myself, I got up on the back of the car numerous times to be as close to Mrs. Kennedy as I could because our driver was, the president was in the right rear seat. Mrs. Kennedy was in the left rear. The driver started to keep the car to the left-hand side of the street to keep the president away from the crowd on the right. Well, that put Mrs. Kennedy right up next to the crowd. So I'd get up on the top of the back of the car and be as close to her as I could so that I could fend off anybody that was trying to do anything. I did that maybe four or five times going down Main Street. People were hanging out of windows, they were on balconies, they were on fire escapes, and it was a very friendly, enthusiastic crowd. The political people were just elated that everything was going so wonderful. Of course, we get down to Houston, and we had to turn right onto Houston in order to get over on Elm to make a left to get on Stemmons Freeway. Now, there's been a lot of criticism about that particular move. They say, well, why didn't you go straight down Main Street? Well, the reason we couldn't do that was Main Street curved off to the left onto Stemmons Freeway. We needed to go off to the right because we needed to go to the trademark. Mm -hmm. And so we had to turn right on Houston and then left on Elm, which put us right in front of the Texas School Book Depository. So in that area, the crowds had diminished considerably. Uh, the biggest crowds were on Main Street. So the, the turn from Houston onto Elm is very sharp. And so with these big cars, we had to slow way down. And we weren't on the back of the car. We were on the, I was on the car immediately behind. It's called the follow-up car. I was on the left side, which was Mrs. Kennedy's side. And I was in a forward position on a running board. And we made the turn onto Elm and we started down Elm toward the triple underpass. And I'm looking over to my left and there's this grassy area and there are a few people, not a lot. Then I, look, I was looking if straight ahead of us, there was this railroad over the top of this the highway. We were gonna go underneath it. And there were people up there, but there were also some police up there. We, we hadn't noticed anything about the uh, building itself, the Texas School Book Depository. We did know that there were, I think, three windows open on that side where we didn't see anything that was unusual. So I was scanning and then all of a sudden I hear this explosive noise over my right shoulder. I didn't recognize it as a gunshot immediately because apparently there was some echo in that area. So, but I started to turn toward that noise. I, my head started, just started to turn to my right, but I only got as far as a presidential car because I saw what the president did. The president was sitting in the right rear and all of a sudden he went like this and then he grabbed his throat and started to fall to his left. I then realized that it was a gunshot. So I jumped from my position on the follow car with the intent of getting running and getting up on top of the presidential vehicle, the rear of it there to form a shield there so that nothing additional could happen. I had to jump off the car and right to my left was a motorcycle officer. And I was running and uh, I didn't hear anything at that time, but they told me later 
While I ran, there was another shot. As I approached the president's car, I was just about grabbing the handle, and I hear another shot. I not only heard that one, I, I felt it because the president at that time, he had fallen to his left farther like mm -hmm. this. Mrs. Kennedy's, her right cheek was right up against his left. And he was down like in this position. And the bullet hit him back here. But it came out here. It erupted right wow. here. And a portion of the skull just flipped up and it was being held by the scalp and it just flapped forward and there was a hole in the skull and I could see in that hole when I got up on top of there but I Mrs. Kennedy came up in the trunk at that time she was trying to grab some of the material that came out of this wound because there was blood and brain matter bone fragments all kinds of stuff and so I got a hold of her and I put her in the back seat then he fell farther to his left the president fell with his head in her lap and the right side was up so I could see in this wound all the brain matter was gone in that area just completely gone and his eyes were fixed and I assumed he was dead uh, it was fatal right there right there I, it was a instant instantaneous death so I turned and gave a thumbs down to the other agents so that they'd know what the situation was and I screamed at the driver to get us to a hospital and he hit the accelerator and we started out, Chief Curry was in a car in front of us, he got right in front of us, and he led us to Parkland Hospital. I got myself up, I wedged myself above President and Mrs. Kennedy in the back of the car, and then hung on for dear life, we were going down Stemmons Freeway. How many years did you relive this moment? Like, at what point, because I'm sure, you know, one of the things is everyone wants to ask you, so hey, how was it, tell me these stories. How many years did you constantly relive this moment? I'm still reliving it occasionally. I got moved from one position to another and I was being promoted. I was still at the White House detail. And in 1970, I was given a desk job at headquarters. I was the deputy assistant director. That meant I dealt with budget and personnel, logistics, all that stuff. But I was sitting at a desk and I had all kinds of time to think. Hmm. That was the wrong thing for me to do because that only thing I thought about was what had happened in Dallas. Wow. And it just ate me up. And it, I started to really deteriorate physically from the psychological problems I was having. By 75, I couldn't pass the physical. And so they had to retire me. Then I went into a deep depression. 1982, I finally, uh, a doctor came to me and told me I I had to quit what I was doing because I, well, I tried to self-medicate. Yeah, yeah, I was self-medicating myself with alcohol Wow! <clears throat> after I got out of the Secret Service. And I cut myself off from everybody. And I'd never discussed what had happened with any of the agents or with my family. In 1990, I finally came back here. That I should have done in 1964. So wait a minute, from 63 to 90, you've never come back to Dallas. And you're in Dallas today, but from 63 to 90? I never came back to Dealey Plaza. That's what I needed to do. I needed to come back and be there, go up in the Texas School Book Depository, look out that window, really recognize the angles, the weather, everything I could. And I did that that day. How emotional was that day? Oh, it was, it was tough to did do. Did somebody accompany you? Or no, did you I, was, I did it myself. Well, you came by yourself. What, what did you have to do yourself? Did you have to, in your own mind, 
uh, as a Secret Service, you're looking at, you're calculating everything. Was it, there's well, nothing I could do about this that we could have prevented. But see, that the problem was, uh, you know, we we all had that sense that we failed. Our job was to protect them. We failed to do it that day, and so that's what was killing me. Because I'd been brought up that when you're given a responsibility, you carry it out to the end, you do your job. And it just ate me up that we had been unable to do our job that day. And I really had a difficult time with that. And that's what I, why I came back to Dalton Dealey Plaza. I wanted to see myself if there was anything I could have done that I didn't do. I finally realized I'd done everything I could based on everything that happened, the way it happened. It wasn't until I was convinced to write this book mm. that it really started to help me. That's the most cathartic thing I did, was to help Lisa McCubbin in writing these books and to talk about them. Once I did that, it just got better with time. Therapeutic when you were talking about it. Very. Unbelievable. And I, I, I've talked to groups from, are suffering from PTSD, and that's what I was going through. And that's what I tell them, is that you've got to be willing to talk about it. If you don't, it's going to eat you up. You just have to get it out. Get it. Find somebody who's a friend or a counselor or a minister, a rabbi, a priest, whoever. Regardless. It doesn't talk matter. About talk about yeah. it. So the way I think about it when I watch it, first of all, what you did, I mean, right there, that moment, a person learns about your instinct. Your instinct is to protect. There is no test that you're going to do as a Secret Service agent to know how you're going to react when somebody's shot on the job. That's when the world found out who you really were when you jumped. Your instant reaction was boom, just on top. That I think, I think the reason why the world has such an affinity when whenever you read anything about you, obviously you can't please everybody. Whenever you read anything about you, the affinity the world has for you for what you did that day is probably one of the main reasons why. There's so much respect for you, for what you did. And I know, you know, there's a lot of different careers you could have chosen. You have a fascinating story, but one of the questions I would have for you now is, okay, so that was in November 22nd, 63. Today, are we safer today? Are presidents safer today? Or is the likelihood of something like that happening higher today than it was, you know, 53 years ago? Well, I can say this. The job of the Secret Service today is much more challenging you than it was. More challenging in, today. Much more challenging than it was in '63 or in the '50s, '60s, or '70s, even the '80s. There are so many new things going on in the world. Technology is a wonderful thing, but it can work against you and it can work for you, and you always are challenged by that new technology. I am so respectful of the agents that are working today because they really have their hands full. Thank God we don't use open cars anymore. But even so, uh, I've always said that you never know what's around the corner. You have no idea until you get there. Security is never 100%. And that's almost what you have to be. You can't uh, let your guard down ever. They're doing a good job. I think they've done an excellent job in the last two years with... Uh, when they brought Joe Clancy back to be their new director. And Joe has done a tremendous job. Final thoughts before we wrap up. Three biggest life lessons you've learned. You've been around a lot of interesting people and you've learned, you know, you, you've had a lot of different experiences. If you can teach us three things from your life, everything you've learned, what could you leave us? Three things we can learn from you. 
Well, the first thing I'll, I'll say is that uh, you'll learn a hell of a lot more from listening than you do from talking. So listen to what people say. Listen to instructions you're given. Pay attention. A lot of people have the opinion that it's better to talk than to listen. That's unfortunate because that doesn't work. And always do your best. You know, sometimes you may feel that the job you're doing is really beneath you or something, but if you do your best and really try your hardest to be a success, you will gradually improve and get a lot better position. I know it's hard to see when you're on the bottom of the rung of a ladder, but uh, it's true that the, the guys that start on the bottom and work their way up, those are the happiest guys. They they didn't, it wasn't handed to them, they earned it. Get as much education as you can and as much experience as you can just in life. Uh, volunteer to do things that uh, maybe they're a little out of your uh, area of expertise, but you'll learn from it. And the more you know, the better off you're going to be in the long run. That's amazing. So, again, thank you so much for coming by and spending this time with us here. Fascinating, fascinating. I've met a lot of interesting people. This was a fascinating story, just spending the hour with you and uh, going through the book. And here's what I would like to do to everybody else who's watching this. So we're going to have Mr. Hill sign three copies of this book, uh, Miss Kennedy and Me, and one copy of Five Presidents. That'll be signed. This is what I need you to do if you want to participate in this contest. I'm going to post this on my Instagram account. I need you to go tag five people, anybody, five people on the Instagram account. You tag five people. We're going to choose four winners, four people we're going to select as winners, and I'll announce those on Snapchat. So you got to make sure you follow me on Snapchat to announce the winners to you. But the day this video goes live, the picture is going to be on my Instagram account. you got to go tag five people because we need as many people to read these stories as possible with five presidents as well as Miss Kennedy and me. And then we'll pick four winners and we'll send a copy to each of those winners to have this book not only in your hands but have it signed by Mr. Clint Hill himself. With that being said, thank you so much for coming out. It was my honor to have a chance well, to meet you. Well, thank you. It's been thank a pleasure you. being here. Pleasure. 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 This week on BuzzFeed Unsolved, we cover the assassination of John F. Kennedy, a topic of controversy for over five decades. Was there actually a conspiracy? What do you think? I'm sure you are well-versed in this one already. I know the broad strokes. Um, I haven't really gotten into details. I figure I'll read like a 1,600-page book when I'm like 60. Yeah, you don't strike me as a detail guy. I am a detail guy. Let's get into it. Okay. <laughs> on Friday, November 22nd, 1963, President John F. Kennedy was publicly assassinated while sitting in a car in a motorcade through Dallas, Texas. Kennedy was struck by two bullets, with the second being a fatal headshot. Governor John B. Connolly Jr., who was in the car with JFK, was also hit in the shooting, but survived. Officially, there were three bullets fired by the gunman. The horrifying act was caught on film by a man named Abraham Zapruder, with his 8mm film camera. The film, now referred to as the Zapruder film, would later go on to be integral into the investigation as it allowed for frame-by-frame -frame analysis. The shooting occurred from the 6th floor window 
at the southeast corner of the Texas School Book Depository, a building along the motorcade route. The official ruling was that the gunman was a man named Lee Harvey Oswald. Two days after the assassination, Oswald was killed by a man named Jack Ruby at the Dallas Police Department. In fact, that shooting was broadcast on live television. I gotta say, kudos to that camera guy for holding that shot. Because yeah, like, if a gunshot went off, all bets I, are off for me. I would throw the camera at the ceiling, scream, and just run. Oh, I wouldn't think about anything. I'd, I'd go, Returning to JFK, there are many who have criticized the motorcade route, believing it to have an unusual amount of turns, which would have caused the motorcade to have to slow down. The route was chosen by Secret Service agents Winston G. Lawson and Forrest V. Sorrells. Secret servicemen sent in advance to check out the route noted that there were over 20,000 windows overlooking the route, but since they didn't have enough men to station at every window, they opted to inspect none of the windows along the route. <laughs> Not a good alternative. <laughs> you know, there's far too many. Hey, fuck it. <laughs> you know, just call it a day. We'll, uh... We don't have enough guys to look at all these windows. What if we just uh, don't do shit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, sounds like a good idea. But sir, the president's going to be coming to town. Eh, he won't care. What are they going to do? Shoot him? <laughs> One week after the assassination, newly sworn-in president and former vice president Lyndon B. Johnson created a commission to investigate the circumstances of the JFK assassination and subsequent killing of Lee Harvey Oswald. This commission was to be headed by Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren and staffed with other esteemed officials. And while the official findings of the commission believes there was only one shooter, it does have one thing in common with numerous conspiracy theories that the shooter was Lee Harvey Oswald. And with that, let's get into the main theory, which is the official ruling by the Warren Commission that Lee Harvey Oswald assassinated JFK alone with no conspiracy involved. Let's get into the background of Lee Harvey Oswald. Oswald had been in Russia in 1959 and had tried to renounce his American citizenship. Oswald had a history of violence from a young age. He once chased a half-brother with a knife. And while in the Marine Corps, where he spent three years, he became qualified as a sharpshooter with the M1 rifle. Oswald, a Dallas resident, was actually under active surveillance by the FBI office in Dallas. However, the local FBI, strangely, did not inform the Secret Service about Oswald. This is especially shocking, considering the fact that Oswald was employed at the Texas School Book Depository, a location right along the motorcade route, from where Oswald would eventually fire the fatal shots from the southeast corner of the sixth floor window. However, to be fair, the Secret Service did not inform the local FBI office of the motorcade route either. So... This was a, a mishandling on both of their parts. They didn't let the clue the Secret Service in, hey, there's kind of like a guy who's kind of crazy, hates America, sharpshooter, right along, you know, where you're going to be. But then again, I guess they wouldn't know that because the Secret Service didn't let the FBI know of the motorcade route, which would be the first thing, or one of the first things I would do. Communication is important in all fields, right? Am I, do you think I'm being too harsh? No, I don't think so. In thinking that the, these were obvious steps that should have been taken. I think if you were in one of those departments, you know, Jack Kennedy would probably still be alive today. Wow, that's, that's high praise. So you think I could have saved the president? I, you know what? I'll give you it. I, I think you could have saved him. Here are direct quotes from the Warren Commission 
in regards to evidence proving Oswald was the shooter. Quote, the Manlicher Carcano 6.5mm Italian rifle, from which the shots were fired, was owned by and in the possession of Oswald. End quote. This was determined due to the fact that there was a nearly whole bullet recovered from Governor Connolly's stretcher and two bullet fragments in the car that matched that rifle, quote, to the exclusion of all other weapons, end quote. The rifle was found hidden near the sixth floor window, as well as three bullet cartridges matching the three shots heard. Continuing with the commission's evidence, quote, Oswald had attempted to kill Major General Edwin A. Walker on April 10th, 1963, thereby demonstrating his disposition to take human life, end quote. So this isn't his first big uh, hit job. No. The first one he missed, imagine he trained like a madman so that he wouldn't miss again. He's, he's got to be good though, right? I mean, he hit two for three. Yeah. Furthermore, Oswald unquestionably also killed Dallas policeman J.D. Tippett with a revolver approximately 45 minutes after the assassination. This is backed up by eyewitness testimony and also due to the cartridge cases found at the scene belonging to a revolver on Oswald at the time of his arrest, among other things as well. So he also killed somebody right after the assassination. At that point, though, you know. I mean, you kill the president, everything yeah. else is below that. Yeah. It's like when you eat a big meal and then have a little <laughs> snack afterwards. Yeah, like if you go eat Chipotle for lunch, might as well have a muffin after. Because might as well have a muffin. Right? You're already doing damage to your body, might as well finish the job. Do you think he uttered the phrase, might as well, <laughs> as he did it? With all that in mind, it seems pretty clear that Oswald was the shooter. However, many have wondered if Oswald acted alone. Unfortunately, due to the fact that Oswald was killed by Jack Ruby, we may never know for sure. And while it should be noted that the Warren Commission found no evidence that Ruby or Oswald were part of a conspiracy to kill the president, it's natural to wonder if Ruby may have killed Oswald to keep him quiet. The Warren Commission also found, quote, no evidence that Oswald was involved with any person or group in a conspiracy to assassinate the president, end quote. The Warren Commission was firm in their belief that Oswald was the sole shooter. To examine that, let's take a closer look at the scene of the crime, and more specifically, the bullets fired. The Warren Commission believes that there were only three bullets fired, with these three subsequent results. The first bullet missed. The second bullet hit JFK in the neck and also hit Governor Connolly, and the third bullet was the fatal headshot. The second bullet in particular is the most controversial in that the Warren Commission posits it hit both JFK and Connolly. This idea is referred to as the magic bullet theory. The commission theorizes that from the sixth floor window, the bullet entered through the back of JFK's neck, exiting downward, then entered through Connolly's right side of his back, exited below his right nipple, then entered and exited through Connolly's right wrist, and finally ended in Connolly's left thigh. They even concluded that the nearly full bullet found in Connolly's stretcher was this second bullet. However, this magic bullet, as it's often referred to online, has been met with a fair share of skepticism. The main point of contention is that many believe the trajectory from the sixth floor window is impossible. Yet, computer renderings of the event have shown that it is indeed possible when you consider that Governor Connolly was sitting on a lower seat than Kennedy, and also when you consider their body positions. That being said, I do find it hard to believe that this so-called magic bullet would be nearly intact after traveling through two bodies. That first one went through JFK's neck. 
neck oh, out the front Christ. through Connolly's back right here under his nipple, came out there. It went through his right wrist that was sitting like this, Oof. went through that, landed in his left thigh, and stayed there. That's a lot for one bullet. And a lot for one bullet to stay intact. Yeah. Interestingly, the Warren Commission claims the magic bullet theory is not integral to their theory that Oswald was the sole shooter. However, when you examine the frames of the Zapruder film, it shows that there was not enough time for Oswald to fire two shots within the time span that JFK and Connolly were first hit. Basically, if the magic bullet theory isn't true, then there had to be two shooters. Do you follow that? Yeah. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So I'm just going to guess it's a single bullet then. I mean, now let me disprove the single bullet theory. Okay, I'll let you do that. <laughs> okay. Taking that into consideration, let's attempt to disprove the magic bullet theory. Here's a quote from Governor Connolly in a 1966 interview with Life magazine. Quote, there is my absolute knowledge, and Nellie's too, that one bullet caused the president's first wound, and that an entirely separate shot struck me, end quote. As stated before, if this is true, then it had to be two shooters. Let's also look at the testimony of James T. Tagg, a spectator along the motorcade route, who claims that a stray bullet hit the sidewalk near him and a fragment of that bullet struck him in the cheek. There was, in fact, a mark on the sidewalk that, according to the Warren Commission report, quote, could have originated from the lead core of a bullet, end quote. This potential stray bullet is noteworthy because Tag claims this stray bullet was actually the second shot and not the first shot, which is particularly damning to the magic bullet theory which posits that the magic bullet was the second shot and the missed bullet was the first. So either Teg misinterpreted the situation or there were more than three bullets fired. And if you recall, there was only three cartridges found by Oswald's window in the Texas School Book Depository, so that would suggest more than one shooter. Furthermore, in the 1970s, a new acoustic research technique was used to analyze the audio of the shooting, which found six points in the audio that could contain echo patterns similar to those of gunfire. This further suggests that there may have been more than one shooter. There's even supposedly footage of the JFK assassination from an angle different than the Zapruder film. This alternate footage reportedly shows a now infamous grassy knoll in the background. People who have seen the footage claim to see anything from puffs of gun smoke or a second shooter located on the grassy knoll. However, this footage has supposedly gone missing. I know people want to figure this out, and that people want justice, but I, this just seems like a lot of work. Have I not made great points here, though? Yeah, you have, but it's like, I don't know, it's not going to bring him back to life. It's yeah. not going to put his head back together. Well, wouldn't you like to know what happened? Do you really want to go on the rest of your life thinking it was a, the sole actions of a madman and not a, a larger part of a conspiracy or a bigger thing? I'm content with that, I guess. Well, you know, here's the thing. If it was a conspiracy, if it was a, a secretive group operating... They did a great job. I commend them. <laughs> no, this isn't... Hey, you fooled us. <laughs> Let's move on, you know? Cynthia Nix Jackson, the granddaughter of the person who took the film, sued the U.S. government for $10 million in 2015 for the return of the film. Apparently, this film has not been seen since the House Select Committee on Assassinations in 1978. This committee, by the way, was formed in 1976 to conduct an investigation into the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King Jr. Why it was formed is of particular interest. 
The House Select Committee on Assassinations was formed after a Senate committee confirmed that the CIA had purposefully withheld information from the Warren Commission investigation. The information withheld involved plots to assassinate Fidel Castro. The House Select Committee on Assassinations concluded in 1978 that scientific acoustical evidence established a high probability that two gunmen had shot at JFK. Also, here's a direct quote from the committee's findings. Quote, the committee believes, on the basis of the evidence available to it, that President John F. Kennedy was probably assassinated as a result of a conspiracy. The committee is unable to identify the other gunmen or the extent of the conspiracy. End quote. That's the government concluding that, not me. Yeah, again, I'm good with that. <laughs> you seem just so, uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what... I just, I, you know, I trust whatever anybody says about it. If the CIA is withholding information that they don't want us to know, great. That's, you know? that's a major bomb just being dropped right there, and you seem indifferent to it. How is that not, like, holy shit, how are the gears not turning in your brain now going, what else are they withholding? Like, JFK made a ton of enemies. That guy was shady as hell. So I said, oh my god, what is this going to turn into a, a, a character? I'm just saying, if him. you go around doing shady shit, yeah, I mean, I think every president has had to do some shady shit. Well, for sure. When considering the conclusions of this committee, the acoustic evidence, the testimonies of Connolly and Tagg, and the shaky premise of the magic bullet theory, there is evidence to suggest multiple shooters. It seems quite likely that there is more to this story than Lee Harvey Oswald killing the president with no clear motive. That being said, let's break out the tinfoil hat and get into some conspiracy theories. And trust me, you're going to want to stick around for the last one. The first theory is that Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson had JFK assassinated for political gain and power. Before Kennedy was elected, LBJ had attempted to take the Democratic nomination from JFK at the 1960 Democratic Convention in Los Angeles. According to the book The Death of a President, LBJ asked the president to continue doing part of his old job as Texas senator which basically meant LBJ was bored and emasculated by the showy office of vice president, as opposed to the actual power he had held while being the majority leader of the Senate. There were also rumors that LBJ might be dropped from the re-election ticket the following year. LBJ and JFK also apparently had words the day before the assassination. LBJ also played a big part in Kennedy going to Dallas in the first place. LBJ no longer had political control of Texas, which was an important swing state necessary for JFK's re-election. As a result, JFK reluctantly went to Dallas to try and solve the Texas political crisis. Texas was LBJ's home turf, and JFK felt LBJ should have had it handled. LBJ's right-hand man had actually been warned by a high-profile Texas lawyer named Byron Skelton that the political climate in Dallas was not safe and that he feared for the president's safety, but the president was not informed. Though, this information was also received by other officials close to JFK, including JFK's brother, Robert Kennedy. One incident that proponents of this LBJ theory point to involves a woman named Madeline Brown, who claimed to have an affair with LBJ. Brown claimed that she attended a party with LBJ, Richard Nixon, and J. Edgar Hoover the night before JFK's assassination. She claimed that LBJ had whispered into her ear, quote, After tomorrow, those Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise. End quote. Jesus. <laughs> I, like, that's compelling. Uh, 
I guess it's a character witness, so you don't really know. I get the vibe that LBJ, he was president, so obviously he's an intelligent man, but he also just seems like kind of an idiot. <laughs> he's always walking around with his pants off. Yeah, that's true. Um, he doesn't seem like the mastermind type. What stock do you put into this admission from her, or this acclaim by her? I'm curious. If I'm LBJ, and I've got my illicit arm charm out for the evening with Tricky Dick next to me and old J. Edgar Hoobs. <laughs> Tricky Dick. I'm not, I'm not going to whisper into her ear, hey, <laughs> Tricky the Dick. president's going to die tomorrow. I can't get over you calling Richard Nixon Tricky Dick. That's what everybody called him. Is that what, was that it? Oh, uh, Tricky Dick. Tricky Dick. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say the quote seems a little on the nose for me. Yeah. Why would someone say it so specifically when they're trying to pull off one of the biggest coups in history? LBJ was on the Texas trip the night before the assassination, where his movements were heavily documented. Therefore, it's not possible that this exchange with Madeline Brown happened. Furthermore, while there is evidence that LBJ wasn't happiest as VP, there is nothing to support the theory that he had JFK assassinated. He even helped form the Warren Commission. LBJ seemed like a cool, cool guy. Well, you just said he seems like a dumbass. Yeah, he does, but he's like a bro. <laughs> you could knock a cold one back with him? Yeah, just because you're a bit of a, a you know... A, he's probably a meathead back in the day. A right? meathead. Here he's a go. meathead. He's a meathead. He's a jock. Yeah, he's a jock. Okay, I'm, I'm, good, with that. I'm good with that. I don't ever. I don't think any vice president has accomplished anything throughout history. In that respect, I don't think he had the, uh, the moxie to pull off this. No. The second theory is that the Russians were behind President Kennedy's assassination. Obviously, there was tension between the two nations with the Cold War. Lee Harvey Oswald had tried to defect to the Soviet Union before, and some theorized that he could have been acting as a KGB agent. Oswald was also inexplicably at the Russian embassy in Mexico City a few weeks before the Kennedy assassination. Though, it's worth mentioning that Oswald would not be a smart option for the Russians to use, since he would immediately cast suspicions on Russia due to his well-known Russian ties. Unless they're doing a double bluff. I wouldn't do that. I mean, huh? think huh? about, about this. that. Well, I mean, look at it logically. Why would we hire Oswald? <laughs> when would we hire Oswald when we, uh, we cl he clearly elects us? Yeah. From a, a logic perspective, we're in this Cold War with them for about 10 years now. There's always the threat of nuclear war. Why the fuck would they even chance hiring a Russian, a person with Russian ties to assassinate the president when they know the finger would be pointed at them. And then, like, if that, if they found, if someone were to find out that Russia, Russia assassinated a president, it's immediate That's World war, war III. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, we all die. Yeah. That's not uh, Vladimir Putin fucking whispering sweet nothings in Trump's ear. That's him blowing someone's head off. Right. The third theory is that the mob assassinated Kennedy. Three different mob groups separately claimed that they were responsible for JFK's assassination the Chicago mob, the Miami mob, and the New Orleans mob. As attorney general, Robert Kennedy had made moves against organized crime, possibly angering them. Jack Ruby, the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, was a Dallas nightclub owner who some theorized had mafia connections. Some even believed that the mob was working in collusion with the CIA to carry out the Kennedy hit. In 2015, an imprisoned former mafia hitman named James Files claimed to have been the second shooter in the assassination, saying he was part of a plot in collaboration between the mafia and the CIA. However, there's no evidence supporting this. Perhaps the most compelling aspect to the mob and CIA theory comes from JFK's supposed ties to Sam Giancana, the head of the Chicago Syndicate at the time. 
JFK's father, Joseph Kennedy, supposedly worked with Sam Giancana in the bootlegging industry during the Prohibition. There have also been rumors that Giancana and the mob helped JFK win the 1960 election in the first place. JFK and Giancana also reportedly shared a mistress at different times, named Judith Campbell Exner. In fact, in 1975, Giancana was supposed to testify to a Senate committee about his role in a CIA assassination plot when he himself was assassinated. It makes you wonder if someone was trying to keep him quiet. But why even claim it then? Eh. Why would he even make that up? Do you think maybe he was just trying to up his cred like in prison? Like, yeah, I, I whacked Kennedy. Yeah, this happens a lot. People always just claiming... Yeah, but I feel like if you're going to claim something, maybe claim you killed uh, some dude carrying groceries down the alleyway. Don't yeah, just no. claim I killed JFK. <laughs> right. <laughs> I yeah. feel like nothing good could come of that. Everyone just kind of rolls their eyes at him. How could I make my prison sentence a life sentence? Huh. I killed God. <laughs> Speaking of the CIA, let's move to our fourth and final theory, that the CIA was ultimately behind the assassination of JFK. Ellen Doles, the former head of the CIA, was actually on the Warren Commission. And as mentioned before, the CIA withheld information from that commission. The CIA now refers to this as a, quote, benign cover-up, end quote. There are plenty of wild theories out there for possible motives for the CIA assassinating Kennedy. Some feel that JFK may have found out that the CIA had a plot to assassinate Fidel Castro, and the CIA felt threatened that Kennedy might have a different agenda or even disband them, so they plotted to assassinate him. Yeah, possible. I'm not, I'm not going to say this one's out of the realm of possibility. There are a bunch of attempts on Castro's life, right? Oh, yeah. Exploding cigar. There was also the Bay of Pigs invasion. Yeah, not great. Was, uh, <laughs> we all know how that went. Forensic historian Patrick Nolan wrote a book entitled CIA Rogues and the Killing of the Kennedys, in which he theorizes that four high-level agents not only planned the shooting, but three of them fired four shots during the assassination. People also feel that the CIA could have picked Oswald to carry out the hit, as he was a known communist and Russian sympathizer. Another possible CIA motive was that after the failed Bay of Pigs invasion into Cuba, the CIA underwent personnel changes at the hand of Kennedy, which may have upset them. Blaming something on the CIA is essentially pointing a finger at a shadow. There's nothing yeah. we know about them, and there's nothing we ever will know about we them. We won't. So that's. I think maybe that's why I'm so comfortable with just never knowing on this and hanging it up, because there's just unknowables. There's people who are good at covering their tracks. The CIA is very, very good at operating in, in total secrecy. So yeah, the, the CIA doesn't even leave tracks. They're the boogeyman of they, the world. They probably control more of our daily life than we'd ever know. They're pulling strings. That's all I'm saying. It, it's, it's pointless to point the finger at them, is what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. It, you, you could say it's anybody at that point, because it doesn't matter. You're making a baseless conclusion. You could say it's fucking Lime Cat or something. Lime Cat? You know, the cat that has a lime cut in half and he wears it as a helmet? He's the person who pulled the trigger. Or she. I don't know if Lime Cat... The internet photo? Yeah, yeah. Lime Cat killed JFK. That's what I'm saying. It's just as Do dumb... Do people call that Lime Cat? Yeah, it's Lime Cat. Isn't it a cantaloupe or something? No, it's, on it's, it's a lime. It's a lime. I don't know. Is it Lime Cat? I'm pretty sure it's Lime Cat. I've, I've never heard someone refer to this cat so casually. Also during that Bay of Pigs invasion, Kennedy refused to offer additional U.S. military support, despite the CIA offering an umbrella of air protection. The explicit use of the word umbrella unlocks one controversial wrinkle to this CIA theory. This wrinkle, which is popular in conspiracy circles, is that Lee Harvey Oswald acted with a potential CIA operative referred to as the Umbrella Man. Whoa! 
I, I love names like that. Oh, it's not just a name. It is very practical. The Umbrella There's Man. There's no creative input into this name. It's all practical. I fucking love that. Oh, man, I can't the wait The Umbrella that. Man. Oh, I love it, too. I can't wait to tell you. Oh, baby. Holy the Umbrella shit. Man. Don't call me baby, but yeah. In the Zapruder film and other photos taken at the time of the shooting, you can see one lone man holding an opened umbrella above his head. At a glance, this may seem fairly innocuous, but there are two things that make it unusual. The first is that it wasn't raining, and despite it raining in Dallas the night before, nobody in the crowd, as far as pictures and media can tell, had an umbrella. The second, and more dubious occurrence, is the fact that Kennedy is struck by the first bullet at the moment his car passes in front of this umbrella man. Also in that moment, some believe that the umbrella man appears to lift his umbrella a foot or so. Both of these things in conjunction have led some to believe that the umbrella was a signal to another gunman, or that the umbrella itself was a spy-like weapon that could fire darts, perhaps explaining the slight hole in JFK's neck. He's like Oswald Cobblepot. Yeah, he's like he's like uh, James Bond, and this is a new weapon that. Ooh, he's like the he's like the penguin, or the penguin. The penguin had a gun a gumbrella. <laughs> I I do want to ask though the term umbrella in the previous quote is what links that to why so is that just an innocuous link there was that a segue from you or are people like that proves that this is a segue and it's somewhat proof in conspiracy circles okay well that's a grasp it's the cia said they're going to offer an umbrella of air protection and kennedy said nah you ain't Mm -hmm. okay well and then so that's very Tenuous. And then they're like, all right, we're going we're gonna to kill you with an umbrella. Uh-huh. <laughs> as outlandish as this may seem, a Department of Defense weapons developer named Charles Sensney incredibly testified to the Senate Intelligence Committee that a form of this wacky umbrella weapon exists because he designed it. Sensney described an umbrella-like weapon that could silently fire darts. One JFK book author named Jim Mars also claimed that these darts were fired through the umbrella's webbing when opened. Furthermore, there are pictures that show the umbrella closed before and after the assassination, but during the assassination, the umbrella was clearly open as Kennedy passed the Umbrella Man. The Umbrella Man strikes. So, yeah, I don't think you have to sell me anymore on this, Ryan. I was I was all in once yeah. you mentioned the words Umbrella Man. What do you think about the umbrella only being able to, uh, to fire through the webbing of the Great. umbrella? Great, I'm on board. That's pretty fucking cool, right? Look, you could convince me... Any of anything in the world, if you just use the words umbrella man. If you say Amelia Earhart, her plane was attacked by an umbrella man and he took her to space, I'd say that sounds about right. Also suspicious is the fact that after the shooting, while other spectators fled the scene, this umbrella man, along with another man, sat down next to each other on the curb, seemingly undisturbed. However, a possible explanation came from the purported umbrella man himself. This man was a man named Louis Stephen Witt, who came forward to the Senate committee to testify, even bringing the umbrella along with him. He claimed that the umbrella was a symbol of protest to JFK's father, Joseph Kennedy. Witt was not a fan of Joseph Kennedy's appeasement policies when Joseph was ambassador to the court of St. James in 1938 to 1939. So, as a symbol of protest, Witt used an umbrella, a reference to the signature accessory of Neville Chamberlain, who promoted appeasement as Prime Minister of England. Witt also explains that he only opened the umbrella when he believed Kennedy could see it. And as odd as this may seem, throughout history, many people both in England and America have used umbrellas as a symbol of protest. 
Even the paranoid former President Nixon banned his aides from having umbrellas when he was vice president to Eisenhower for fear of having a visual link to the unpopular policy of appeasement. I, this, I'm, I'm fed up with this guy. Also, oh, he shows up to court and says, no, this is the umbrella. It's not, <laughs> I couldn't possibly have yeah, two I know. umbrellas. By the way, no follow-up from this testimony. None of them searching his house. Nobody saying and confirming that this is the Umbrella Man. It's just a guy saying this flimsy little excuse about uh, some history lesson that he probably, mm -hmm. uh, I guess he couldn't have Googled it, but he, he could have went to the local history professor. Absolutely shameful. I don't know. I find it very uh, weak. The supposed Umbrella Man wit also claimed that the umbrella blocked his view of Kennedy being assassinated thus explaining his apparent state of calm, or shock as he described it, as he sat on the curb after the shooting. But some have claimed this isn't proven in the footage. Perhaps Louis Stephen Witt is in fact the Umbrella Man, and this is all a misunderstanding. Or perhaps Witt is a puppet for the CIA to cover its tracks. Nobody can say definitively which is true. <laughs> Fucking Umbrella Man. Well, I, I, I just can't believe that that's his excuse. Mm -hmm. I couldn't see it. I didn't see it. I didn't see it. I heard the gunshots. I saw everyone running, and I thought, oh, it must be part of the parade. It was a very nice parade. I didn't see the part where the president got shot in the head. <laughs> in the end, people continued to speculate on what truly happened in Dallas that day. A 2003 ABC News poll conducted 40 years after JFK's assassinations found that approximately 70% of Americans believed there was some sort of plot behind the killings. Only 32% accepted the Warren Commission's findings, and 51% believed there was a second gunman involved. In 1973, LBJ told The Atlantic, quote, I never believed that Oswald acted alone, although I can accept that he pulled the trigger. End quote. I just can't believe that one single douchebag could assassinate a president. Yeah, he's not a very good villain, right? No. He doesn't even have a, he doesn't even have a scary outfit. No, oh, he's got like a nice smart sweater. And he's got like trendy hair. <laughs> trendy it's hair. like perfectly greasy. Side note, what do you think Lee Harvey Oswald used in his hair? I gotta get some of that product. Oh, some good, good pomade. <laughs> That's some gentleman's pomade right there. Well, I guess we'll never know what happened in Dallas that day. Lime cat. Lime cat. Lime cat. Did Lee Harvey Oswald act alone? Was there other gunmen? Perhaps the mysterious Umbrella Man. And if there were, who were they working for? The horrific assassination of John F. Kennedy will remain unsolved. On the 22nd of November 1963, U.S. President John F. Kennedy is assassinated in Dallas, Texas. The policeman says, no, you cannot come in here. You cannot come in here. For 50 years, the truth behind the tragic events has been veiled by secrecy, conspiracy theories, and classified government records. Now, two experts have re-examined the evidence, and their conclusions are startling. Could Kennedy's secret killer have been hiding in plain sight all along? The 
basic facts of the most famous assassination in history are simple. The usual welcoming committee presents Mrs. Kennedy with a bouquet of red roses. It's a routine visit to Dallas on the presidential campaign trail. The sun is shining, the people are welcoming, and the top of the presidential limo is down. At 12.30 p.m., shots are fired. President John F. Kennedy is mortally wounded, and Texas Governor John Connolly is seriously injured. It was definitely the president's car. We can see the first lady's paint suit. That's the only identification we could Both men are rushed to nearby Parkland Hospital. Half an hour later, President Kennedy is pronounced dead. The president of the United States is dead. Kennedy's suspected killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, 45 minutes after the assassination, murders a police officer. He's then arrested in a Dallas movie theater. Then President Kennedy's body is flown to Washington for the autopsy. Two days later, Dallas club owner Jack Ruby shoots and kills Kennedy murder suspect Oswald. The next day, President Kennedy is buried at Arlington Cemetery. That's where the accepted facts of the Kennedy assassination end, and the mystery of what actually happened begins. Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren is appointed by new President Lyndon Johnson to investigate widespread suspicion that Lee Harvey Oswald was part of a greater criminal plot. Over the next 10 months, in closed court sessions, 552 witnesses give testimony to the Warren Commission, resulting in an 888-page report released to the public. Yet, 50 years later, President Kennedy's murder is still shrouded in suspicion, mystery, and conspiracy theories. How can a crime that is witnessed by hundreds of people, filmed by at least 30, watched by millions on TV, and repeatedly investigated, remain the subject of such speculation? Veteran detective Colin McLaren spent 18 years in the Australian police force investigating the country's most baffling crimes. He makes a surprising discovery when he turns his formidable skills on the JFK case. I learned that no other career detective had ever undertaken a cold case study, a forensic analysis of all of the evidence, all of the testimony, and I wanted to be the first. One thing I had to do is I had to see the crime scene. Once I got there, I looked up at the sixth floor of the book depository. I had great trouble understanding why two dozen Secret Service agents hadn't seen a man with a gun. Oswald's perch was much smaller, much tighter, than I ever imagined from all of the photographs I studied. The thing that struck me most about this case, that even after 50 years, with the majority of the American people rejecting the Warren Commission findings, it's those findings that stand today. McLaren knows he's not the first person to seriously question the Warren Commission's findings. In 1967, American news network CBS put these findings to the test. CBS News had a tower and target track constructed to match exactly 
the heights and distances in Dealey Plaza. The target, a standard FBI silhouette, moved by electric motor at 11 miles an hour, approximately the speed of the presidential limousine. Eleven volunteer marksmen took turns, firing clips of three bullets each at the moving target. The CBS special asks, is it physically possible to fire three rounds in 5.6 seconds or less? Using the antiquated Manlika Kakano bolt-action rifle Lee Harvey Oswald had used. It is a clumsy weapon to bring to that sort of a fight. Lee Harvey Oswald, let's be honest, he had a bit of junk. A weapons engineer had the best score. Three hits in 5.2 seconds. So CBS concludes that it is plausible to fire the three shots on target in less than 5.6 seconds. Here we have an outstanding ballistics man who did that control test. However, it was his third attempt. So he had a few rehearsals. Lee Harvey Oswald, he was on the fly. He, he had his gun out and he was pointing it and he was shooting. He had no rehearsals and he was riddled with obviously adrenaline and pressure, nerves and probably fear. So I can't accept that he could get three away in that amount of time at all. Neither could Howard Donahue. Not only was he the best marksman, he was also a ballistics expert. His test on CBS News launches him into a personal investigation that would eventually reveal who really killed JFK. In 1967, a popular men's magazine asks Howard Donahue, a weapons engineer, to write an article backing the Warren Commission's conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald is the lone gunman responsible for killing JFK. First, Donahue looks at ballistics. The Warren Commission concluded that Oswald fired three shots. His first shot passed through Kennedy's neck, wounding him and Texas Governor John Connolly. Oswald's second shot missed entirely. And his third shot hit JFK in the head and killed him. Donahue decides to examine each of the three shots. What the commission said was Oswald's first shot is probably the most contentious. The commission found that the bullet struck President Kennedy at the base of his neck, just to the right of his spine, exited his throat below the Adam's apple, struck Governor Connolly beneath and behind his right armpit, shattered four inches at Connolly's fifth rib, exited below his right nipple and crashed through his right wrist before finally lodging two inches deep in Connolly's left thigh. For many critics of the Warren Commission, the position of the two men in the presidential limousine rules out the single-bullet theory. The critics find it preposterous that a bullet slanting down from the right rear of the president could pierce his throat, make a sharp right turn, enter the extreme right side of Connolly's back. But Donahue discovers that Connolly and his wife are riding in jump seats. The jump seats were close to the center of the car and lower than the bench seats the Kennedys rode in, which means that Governor Connolly was sitting lower down and further inboard than it appeared. Donahue places Connolly where he was actually sitting, with his body turned. Now, the bullet's trajectory lines up perfectly. He proves that the Warren Commission's often ridiculed single bullet theory is in fact correct. Critics of the Warren Commission also argue that the bullet is too pristine to have ripped through two men. But to his trained eye, 
the bullet was in fact deformed. This contention that the bullet was perfect was a fallacy. This is further proof to Donahue that the Warren Commission's single bullet theory was correct. But does the bullet match Oswald's rifle? Mr. Fraser. Firearms expert, FBI agent Robert Frazier, answers that question before the Warren Commission. Are you familiar with this exhibit? Yes, sir. This is a bullet which was delivered to me in the FBI laboratory on November 22nd. And did you examine this exhibit to determine whether it had been fired in Exhibit 139, Lee Harvey Oswald's Carcano rifle? Yes, sir. And what was your conclusion? It was. Exhibit 399 was fired from the rifle 139. The FBI tests showed that the marks on the bullet matched the chamber of Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle. That's equivalent to fingerprints. Donahue agrees that the single bullet struck the president and Connolly. But he wonders if that was actually the first of the three shots, as the commission stated. Even the surviving victim, Governor Connolly, disagrees with the commission's findings. I am convinced beyond any doubt that I was not struck by the first bullet. I know that I heard the first shot, that I turned to my right to see what was happening. Seeing nothing, I was in the process of turning to my left, and I was struck by a second shot. The third shot struck the president, but did not strike me. Now, as I said earlier, this testimony was presented to the Warren Commission. They chose to disagree with my interpretation and my memory of what had occurred. Donahue discovers that senior Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman's testimony also contradicts the commission's order of shots. Kellerman was riding in the front seat of the presidential limousine. That's right, sir. He describes what he heard after the first shot. There was a report like a firecracker, pop. And as I turned my head to the right to view whatever it was or see whatever it was, I heard a voice from the back seat, and I, I firmly believe it was the president's. My God, I'm hit. Donahue wondered how President Kennedy could say this if that first shot had cut through his throat and windpipe, the way the commission said it did. Why did the Warren Commission say that the first shot hit JFK in the back of the neck? There is ample corroborative evidence from many witnesses that saw the first shot hit the pavement and ricochet off. Virgie Rashley was a bookkeeper at the book depository. In her Warren Commission statement, she says she saw a bullet bouncing off the roadway. I saw a shot where something hit the pavement. What did it look like when you saw it? Well, as I said, I thought it was a firecracker. It looked just like you could see the sparks from it. Is it possible that a fragment from this ricocheting bullet struck Kennedy, causing him to exclaim, My God, I'm hit, before he was shot through the neck by the second bullet? Donahue thinks so, and is now convinced that the Warren Commission got the order of the first two shots wrong. Next, he turns his attention to the bullet that delivered JFK a fatal headshot. Dr. James Humes is the pathologist in charge at the Bethesda Naval Hospital. He conducts the president's autopsy just a few hours after his assassination. When Humes testifies before the Warren Commission, he's asked to describe the damage the third shot inflicted. The third obvious wound at the time of the examination was a huge defect over the right side of the skull. This defect involved both the scalp 
and the underlying skull, and the brain substance protruding. According to Hume's testimony, the wound extended 10 to 12 centimeters back to front, from just behind the president's ear to just above his hairline. This enormous wound is a total mystery. One bullet pierces the bodies of two men and emerges in one piece. Yet the bullet that hit Kennedy in the head explodes in a hail of lead. Why did these bullets perform so differently? This is not the work of a four metal jacket bullet. This is more the work of a frangible bullet that is designed to explode violently upon impact. Colin McLaren wants to see the difference in bullet performance, starting with the full metal jacket bullet that Oswald used in his Kakano rifle. This is a full metal jacket round. It's a Kakano 6.5 millimeter round. It's designed for warfare. It's designed to travel. Ready to fire. Firing. Colin, I think we're seeing a typical full metal jacket drive through. Drills a hole, clean as a whistle. This is a point .223 frangible hollow point round. It's designed to explode upon impact, and the results are devastating. Range is going hot, ears and eyes, ready to fire. As a ballistics expert, Donahue knew that you did not get one shot going straight through, and one shot that explodes from the same gun and the same ammunition. According to the autopsy report, the entrance wound's diameter is six millimeters, and the bullet tunnels for 15 millimeters before fragmenting. Donahue drills a hole, exactly the same size as the entrance wound recorded at the autopsy. If the shot had come from Oswald's Kakano rifle, the entrance wound in JFK's skull would have to be at least the diameter of the bullet, or bigger. But the entrance wound is only six millimeters in diameter. Therefore, it's simply impossible for a 6.5 millimeter Kakano bullet to have impacted JFK's skull. But if the third shot could not have come from Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle, why were three shell casings found at his sniper perch? The advocates of the Lone Gummer theory will always mention the three spent casings that were found in Oswald's perch. One of them was away from the other two. And Howard Donahue explains the single one perfectly. It was dented and probably used as a chamber plug. That is to stop moisture and grit from getting into the chamber. The dented casing was found several feet from the other two casings. Perhaps Oswald ejected this chamber plug before firing the first two shots from the window. So if the third and fatal headshot didn't come from Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle, where did it come from? The Warren Commission calculated that the headshot came down at a declination of just under 16 degrees. The trajectory from the book depository was uh, 16 degrees uh, down and about uh, 6 degrees right to left, based on the midline of the vehicle. Bonar Menninger is a Kansas-based journalist who chronicled Howard Donahue's search to uncover what happened in Dallas. Even if the entrance wound 
and Oswald's position lined up, that right-to-left trajectory would have suggested that the exit wound would have been somewhere in his uh, left side of his face, maybe his forehead, his nose, and not the upper right portion of his skull. Donahue decides to conduct his own trajectory tests. He uses the Warren Commission's autopsy exhibits to determine the bullet's entrance and exit points. He drills the exit hole and hopes to trace the line of trajectory back to its source. Donahue slides a dowel through the skull to line up the trajectory with the position of President Kennedy's head at the time of the third shot. Howard couldn't believe it, that it was absolutely impossible for the trajectory from Oswald's sniper position uh, to have caused the wound that Kennedy suffered in his head. Didn't make sense. It looks like the Warren Commission's lone gunman theory is wrong. Seeking answers, Donahue meets pathologist Dr. Russell Fisher. Fisher has been appointed by the Attorney General to re-examine JFK's autopsy, and he reveals startling new information about the President's head wound. Dr. Fisher told him that uh, the entrance wound was mislocated. It's much higher, maybe four inches in this area here, perhaps here. Huh. At the autopsy in Bethesda, it was down here by the occipital protuberance, which is that bony bump on the back of your skull. But in fact, Dr. Fisher's panel found that it was four inches higher. It's at an inch to the right of the midline. It's a, a big difference. Armed with this new information, Donahue can now trace back the trajectory of the fatal shot based on the entrance wound's correct location. What he discovers comes as a complete surprise. On his drawings, he traces that trajectory back. He's shocked to discover it goes over the left rear seat of the Secret Service agent's follow-up car, close behind the presidential limousine. Could the fatal shot have been fired by an agent? Donahue writes to the Secret Service and asks for the names of the agents who rode in the follow-up car, what weapons they carry, and what caliber those weapons are. The Secret Service replies, that they do not disclose the types of weapons they use, other than that agents are issued 38 caliber revolvers. The letter adds that Secret Service agents fired no shots at the time of the assassination. But Colin McLaren discovers witnesses who contradict the Secret Service. There is 10 witnesses that kind of smelled gunpowder at the time of the shooting at street level. Dallas Patrolman Earl Brown is standing on a railway bridge, looking down at the motorcade as it races to Parkland Hospital. I heard those shots and then I smelled this gunpowder. Oh, I'd say a couple minutes later or so. Dallas Mayor Earl Cabell and his wife Elizabeth are sitting in a convertible four cars back from the presidential limousine. I was acutely aware of an odor of gunpowder. With the wind at 15 miles per hour from the southwest, that gunpowder couldn't have come from the sixth floor window, not with the, the wind blowing in Lee Harvey Oswald's face. To Colin McLaren, the testimonies from witnesses who smelled gunpowder at street level are strong evidence of a second shooter. One of these witnesses was Senator Ralph Yarborough, riding with Vice President Lyndon Johnson in an open Lincoln 
directly behind the Secret Service follow-up car. I've hunted all my life, and I've handled all kinds of weapons in the Army. I knew they were rifle shots, and there were three of them. A second or two later, I smelled gunpowder. I always found that strange, because being familiar with firearms, I could never see how I could smell the powder from a rifle in that high building. You don't smell gunpowder unless it blows in your face. If a second weapon was fired, whose was it? After the shooting, police gather several dozen witnesses, many claiming to have seen it. The Dallas Sheriff's Office found the best type of witness, those that saw something on the day and were prepared to make statements before they could be corrupted from outside influences. I heard at least two shots fired. 22-year-old Hugh Betzner is standing alongside the motorcade taking photographs. I also saw a man in either the president's car or the car behind his pull out what looked like a rifle. Hugh Betzner is just one of the people to see a gun at the scene. McLaren discovers that there are others. Senator Ralph Yarbrough is in the motorcade. He also says that he saw a Secret Service agent pull out a rifle. I heard three shots, no more. All seemed to come from the right rear. Some of the Secret Service men looked backward and to the right in the general direction for where the explosion seemed to come from. The one Secret Service man sitting down in the car ahead of us pulled out an automatic weapon or rifle, and he looked backward. Dallas Mayor El Cabell is traveling in a convertible four cars behind the presidential limousine. We could tell, of course, that there was confusion in the presidential car. Activity. The Secret Service men ran to that car. From out of nowhere appeared one Secret Service man with a submachine gun. His attention seemed to be focused up toward the building. Even Secret Service agent Winston Lawson testifies that he saw a fellow agent holding a rifle. But I also noticed, right after the reports, an agent standing up with an automatic weapon in his hand. And the first thing that flashed through my mind was that he had fired, because this was the only weapon I'd seen up to that point. Just one camera captures an agent inside the Secret Service follow-up car with an assault rifle in his hands. What Howard Donahue now suspects is that the second shooter has been hidden in plain sight all along. But who is the agent? And why would he shoot the president? Howard Donahue concluded that the Warren Commission's lone gunman theory was wrong. There had to be a second shooter in Dealey Plaza. His ballistic tests traced the kill shot back to the Secret Service car behind the presidential limousine. Colin McLaren also found several witnesses who smelt gunpowder at street level and saw an agent brandishing a rifle. In the days immediately after the assassination, the Secret Service agents are ordered to write statements about their actions that day, including George Hickey. The last shot seemed to hit his head and cause noise at the point of impact, which made him fall forward and to his left again. At the end of the last shot, I reached to the bottom of the car and picked up the AR-15 rifle, cocked and loaded it, and stood partway up in the car and looked about. 
At this point, the cars are passing under the overpass. George Hickey's version of what happened is interesting. He claims that he had hold of the AR-15 just as they were going underneath the underpass. Yet, you've got 11 different witnesses who gave testimony that say very clearly he had hold of the weapon at the time of the third shot. That is, of course, back on Dealey Plaza. Interestingly, again, is of those 11, seven of them are Secret Service agents. Agent Winston Lawson rides in front of the president in the lead car. He gives a sworn statement about what he saw. I noticed Agent Hickey standing up in the follow-up car with the automatic weapon. I first thought he fired at someone. Agent Roy Kellerman, in his Warren Commission testimony, confirms that weapon is in the motorcade. We have an AR-15. It's out of its case. Uh, it won't be shown. It could be laying on the floor, but uh, she is ready to go. Ready to go means that the assault weapon is cocked, loaded, one up the spout, and safety on. In the case of George Hickey, all he would have had to have done was flip the safety, point, and shoot. But that's not what Agent Hickey claims in his written statement. I reached to the bottom of the car and picked up the AR-15 rifle, cocked and loaded it, and stood partway up in the car and looked about. Why did Hickey say he cocked and loaded the AR-15 when Kellerman testifies it was ready to go? Earl Warren confronts Secret Service Chief James Rowley about the use of assault rifles in the motorcade. As you go along in the motorcade, you have men who are scanning the buildings along the route, don't you? Yes, sir. And they have submachine guns in one of their cars? No. Warren knows from other testimony that this is not true. For security reasons, I'd, li I'd like to... Rowley evades the question. We have no machine guns now. So here we have a situation where the latest weapon in the Secret Service arsenal, the AR-15, is withdrawn immediately after. To try to understand the Secret Service's actions, Colin McLaren retraces their steps leading up to the assassination. The Secret Service agents put JFK to bed just after midnight, and then for some strange reason they went bar hopping and they were seen to be in the company of scantily clad women, as the Warren Commission called it, strippers in other words. And the drinking went on till just after 5am before they went back to their rooms to prepare themselves for a 7am start. Agent George Hickey, whose primary role was as a driver, was already in Dallas preparing the cars for the motorcade. He in fact was gazetted or attached to the garage, that is to polish the cars, check the oil and water and prepare it for the president and the motorcade. George Hickey was not in the bar getting drunk the night before. And that had to have been the reason for George Hickey, who was at that stage just a driver, to have to step up, take the AR-15 and take the sniper role on the follow-up car, a set of responsibilities totally foreign to him. Now McLaren examines the behaviour of the Secret Service at Parkland Hospital directly after the shooting. The lead car, the President's limousine, and the Secret Service follow-up car arrive at Parkland at 12.36pm, six minutes after the three shots were fired. Senator Ralph Yarbrough is among those in this bloody motorcade. I walked up to the car where Mrs. Kennedy was still there on the back seat, lying there with her head bowed over, covering the husband's head, his blood running down her leg and by on her clothes, and twice saying, 
They've murdered my husband. They've murdered my husband. It's the most tragic sight of my life. Texas law requires an autopsy to be performed before the body can be shipped out of the state. Dr. Earl Rose is the Dallas County Medical Examiner. The body cannot leave this hospital until after an autopsy has been performed. Well, this is the body of the President of the United States, and we're going to take it back to Washington. You are not taking him anywhere. There's a law here, and we are going to enforce it. You cannot lose the chain of evidence. My friend, that part of the law can be waived. Now, either you move, or we run it over you. The Secret Service escorts the President's body from Parkland Hospital and loads the casket aboard Air Force One. I was struck by the heavy-handed manner in which the Secret Service and the Presidential aides removed the body from Dallas. Was it simply a panicked reaction to the chaos of the moment, or was it more a deliberate attempt of a cover-up of what happened earlier that day in Dealey Plaza? Air Force One touches down at Andrews Air Force Base outside Washington at 5.58 p.m. President Kennedy's body is driven to Bethesda Naval Hospital for the autopsy. Chief pathologist James Humes and his team know their efforts here tonight will be critical to any criminal proceeding against the crime's perpetrator. J. Edgar Hoover has sent FBI agents James Siebert and Francis O'Neill to stay with the body through to embalmment. He expects a detailed report on everything that happens in the autopsy room. Typically, a small pathology team are alone, but this is no ordinary autopsy. Here we have an autopsy where there's at least 30 people inside the suite. Representatives of the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, the FBI, technicians, pathologists, all working in this massive crush to get the autopsy done, arguing, talking over each other. The head pathologist, Dr Humes, even stated in evidence that he wished he could have chucked them all out. Just stay back a little bit, please. It was like trying to do delicate neurosurgery in a three-ring circus. Thirty years after the JFK assassination, the Clinton administration initiates the Assassination Records Review Board to release documents relating to the shooting and conduct interviews about JFK's autopsy. This gives Colin McLaren access to vital information that was classified during Howard Donahue's investigation in the 1970s. In 1995, the ARRB subpoenaed all records to do with the Dallas trip from all agencies involved. They wanted to inspect all the books. Unfortunately, the Secret Service destroyed their documents, all their records, the week earlier. Of course, why would they do that? Did the Secret Service have something to hide? From the outset, McLaren thinks basic forensic practices were being ignored. Secret Service agent's clothing is spattered with JFK's brain matter. Their clothing should have been bagged up and treated as exhibits. They were witnesses. They should never have been there, yet they stayed for the duration. Dr. Humes examines the President's head, recording a massive wound 130 millimetres in diameter. He concludes it is the result of a bullet that's exploded. X-ray technician Gerald Custer X-rays the president according to Dr. Hume's instructions. Good. Clear. When developed, these X-rays clearly show multiple bullet fragments in the skull. Later, 
Custer's boss, Dr. John Ebersole, approaches him. He made it perfectly clear I was not to speak of this. If you could, convey the sense of the words that he gave you as best as you can. Keep your mouth shut. Okay, that's perfectly blunt. Forensic photographers take many photos, especially of JFK's head wound. Young photographer Floyd Reby testifies to taking around 100 shots on eight or nine separate film rolls. They are crucial evidence. When you finished with one roll of 35-millimeter film, what did you do with that? Uh, well, I took it out of the camera and gave it to one of the Secret Service agents there. The FBI records show that 22 color rolls and 18 black and white rolls are taken. Their care is entrusted to the Secret Service agent, Roy Kellerman. Gerald Custer testifies that the autopsy room was a scene of loud debate and that he witnessed the doctors being harassed. The commotion level was astronomical. The decibel level was extremely high. You had to scream at people at times. There was a four-star general in there and a civilian who I took to be Kennedy's personal physician. And were this general and this person in civilian clothing giving directions to Dr. Ebersol? Uh, correct. Absolutely. What kind of directions were they giving to him? In a sense, the Kennedy family would not like you to pursue this path any farther. Would you like her to come in right now? Would you like her? Wait, this ain't going to still be here. We've got the White House on our back. What are we supposed to see? All right, you have five minutes. Dr. Humes does complete the autopsy, but having had his work disrupted, he's dissatisfied with the result. The pathology slides created by Dr. Humes are handed to Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman. If everything in the autopsy suite was on the up and up, you would have had a cause of death sorted out within about three or four hours. All the exhibits would have been bagged, labelled, and a proper continuity and signatures would have taken place. But unfortunately, none of that happened. Shortly after the autopsy, Dr. Humes's boss, George Berkeley, informs him that Robert Kennedy wants his brother's brain. He asked me would I give him the brain, which I promptly handed to him in a pail. Then the mystery really begins, because what happened after that, I don't know. What George Berkeley did with the brain is the mystery of the century. And why I so easily acceded to his wishes, I don't know other than he was talking about Bobby and the family and what they want. Days after the autopsy, Dr. Ebersole returns from a meeting at the White House with the Secret Service. He has a strange request for Gerald Custer. He gave me three or four different metal fragments bearing in size, and he asked me to tape them to the bones. And did you tape them to the bones? Yes, sir. Custer says he was asked to manufacture an X-ray that would obscure detection of an explosive frangible bullet by placing full metal jacket bullet fragments on JFK's remains. Well, that was the most traumatic. After I signed the gag order, I was told that if anything, no matter what got out, it would be the sorriest day of my life, and that I'd spend most of my time behind prison walls. A few days later, the chief photographer and Floyd Reby are approached by a Secret Service agent. 
You mentioned something related to a secrecy oath. Well, we were told that this was classified information under the National Security Act. And we had to read it and sign it. And if uh, we talked about it to anybody at all, well, we'd be court-martialed. Virtually everybody in that autopsy suite that day was forced to sign a gag order. Is the Secret Service trying to cover up a complex conspiracy to kill the President of the United States? Ballistic expert Howard Donahue has a simple answer. As McLaren scours the Warren Commission report, he discovers that some vital witnesses from the autopsy were never called, and that in his view, pivotal evidence was disregarded. Most crucially, the autopsy notes of FBI agents James Siebert and Francis O'Neill. McLaren discovers that assistant counsel Arlen Spector meets with the two agents and asks them if they'd made any notes in the autopsy suite. The agents said that they did. They also told him that senior Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman took possession of all photographs and x-rays. He promised they would be made available to the FBI. Almost all of these x-rays and photographs are never seen again. Did you see any FBI or Secret Service agents taking notes? Oh, that's right. Sibbert and O'Neill. I could swear they were writing a book that night, writing it down. But Assistant Counsel Arlen Spector tells a different story. In a memo written by Spector, he stated there was no notes made by Siebert and O'Neill. Was this a misunderstanding by Spector or was it in fact a lie? Either way, Siebert and O'Neill weren't called to the Warren Commission or their notes. Why? Two months into the Warren Commission hearings, X-ray technician Gerald Custer has a preliminary interview with Councillor Spector outside the courtroom. There's little doubt that Custer's observations in the autopsy and his story of falsifying an X-ray for the Secret Service would have been explosive evidence at the Warren Commission. Custer tells Spectre his story and waits to be summoned. Spectre never calls him. Senator Ralph Yarbrough is also keen to testify at the Warren Commission. He was in the car behind Secret Service agent George Hickey. One Secret Service man sitting down in the car ahead of us pulled out an automatic weapon or rifle and he looked backward. I smell gunpowder. It clung to the car nearly all the way to the hospital. Chief Justice Warren demanded that Yarborough be called to testify. He never did. Why Warren's order was not obeyed is a mystery. Although he was the head of the inquiry, McLaren believes he was not always in control. For whatever reason, the commission did not interview key eyewitnesses. It's not known whether Arlen Spector spoke to any of the agents from the follow-up car. Only one of those agents in the car gave evidence to the Warren Commission. Depending on your point of view, that is either very neglectful or very telling. I came to believe that the Warren Commission themselves weren't interested in finding the truth. For Howard Donoghue and Colin McLaren, the overwhelming evidence of their investigation reveals what they think is the truth behind the assassination of JFK. Three shots are fired. The first is by Lee Harvey Oswald. It misses, but a ricocheting fragment of the bullet hits the president, causing him to say, my God, I'm hit. At the sound of gunfire, Agent George Hickey turns to look up at the sixth floor window. Oswald fires again. The second bullet enters the president's back, 
and exits his neck, hurtling forward into Governor Connolly's bag and exiting through his chest. Hickey picks up the AR-15 to return fire, flicks off the safety, and as the follow-up car lunges forward, he pulls the trigger. The presidential car is rushed to Parkland Hospital, where, McLaren believes, a massive cover-up begins. Both Donahue and McLaren find that 11 people are able to put the assault rifle in George Hickey's hands at or before the time of the third shot. Seven of the 11 are Hickey's fellow Secret Service agents. McLaren and Donahue also identified 10 people who testified that they smelled gunpowder at street level at or around the time of the shooting. You don't smell gunpowder unless it blows in your face. The autopsy in Bethesda, Maryland is also suspicious to McLaren. The Secret Service's interference, the falsified x-rays, the lost photographs, and the missing brain of the president all suggest a conspiracy. Uh, we talked about it to anybody at all. Well, we'd be court-martialed. Finally, there is the Warren Commission itself, with its unsummoned witnesses, unheard testimony, unanswered questions, and unpresented evidence. Colin McLaren believes the Warren Commission had their shooter conveniently dead. They had their murder weapon. They had a plausible forensic account of a three-bullet assassination. Case closed. McLaren believes that the US government was covering up Secret Service agent George Hickey's fatal shot. But why did Hickey shoot the President of the United States? Both Donahue and McLaren agree the third shot that hit Kennedy was the result of a tragic accident. Agent Hickey reached down on the seat beside him, grabbed the AR-15, bring it to his shoulder, he flipped off the safety, and at that time he fell over backwards and the gun went off, striking President Kennedy in the back of the head. What Howard proved, in my view, was that Oswald didn't fire that shot, and most likely it was fired by Agent George Hickey from the follow-up car accidentally. In the panic of the moment, you know, in the chaos of combat, he's trying to respond, he's trying to do his job. He's probably already acquired Oswald visually, going to return fire, and fate intervenes. George Hickey never takes the stand to be cross-examined about his statement. He never speaks publicly about the assassination. He dies in 2005. Understanding the real cause of the death of JFK isn't about blackening the name of any individual or organisation. It's about the truth and supplying a definitive answer to the American people. An answer no more complex than a tragic accident colliding with a foolhardy assassination attempt. Maybe it's time to quietly close the door behind history's most talked about and debated crime scene.
subscribe to the Detroit Podcast Network on iTunes, and don't forget to rate and review while you're there. You can also download the Stitcher and Podbean app to your device for free and search Detour Podcast Network and subscribe. If you enjoy listening to the shows on the Detour Podcast Network, then spread the word to everyone you know. Your word of mouth is our best advertising method, and we appreciate your support. Thanks for listening. First, going to d2rpn.com and clicking the Amazon banner. By doing so, you're helping out the D2R Podcast Network. Don't forget to tell a friend, and thanks for listening. comment or concern 872-242-8311 or maybe you just like to hear your voice instead of ours 872-242-8311 then call the d2r podcast network hotline at usa chat 311 that's 872-242-8311 872-242-8311 no matter the time or day you can call 24 7 and operators will be standing by 872-242-8311 your call is important to us 872-242-8311 so once again usa chat 311 872-242-8311 872-242-8311 872-242-8311 Hey, Dave. Hey, Ryan. Why are you so excited? Because Santa's coming. Yeah, but Twisted Crib. I know, it's over. But Santa's coming. You're right. Santa is coming.